This episode is brought to you by Bubs Naturals, and one of the most profound new supplements I've added to my own diet is collagen. And Bubs provides the only collagen that is not only NSF certified, but also Whole30 certified. Now, when we think of collagen, you might think of beauty products, but when ingested, collagen not only positively affects skin, nails, and hair, but also joint and gut health, something that I witnessed personally within myself. Now, I'm also a huge fan of altruistic business, and Bubs was founded out of tragedy. Glenn Bub Doherty was one of the two Navy SEALs killed in Benghazi. And his friends, Sean and TJ, founded this company to not only create great nutritional products, but also take 10% of the proceeds and donate them to charity. So they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, 20% off your first purchase if you use the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear more about the inception of Bubs and Glenn's powerful story, listen to episode 558 of Behind the Shield podcast with Sean Lake. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorne is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, Behind the Shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. 
their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 511, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Bryce Hansen. Now, Bryce is a former Green Beret, an artist, and also a member of the Human Performance Project team. Now, what makes this episode so incredibly powerful, and as you've probably seen it as a longer episode, is Bryce walks us through from his early life, through his career, the mental health challenges that he himself was unaware of within his own mind, and then his incredible experience with Ibogaine through the Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions Program. So I urge you to listen to this from beginning to end. It's longer. Obviously, it may take a a longer commute to, to conclude this, but the journey you will hear Bryce go through the desperation, the near suicide, the relationship breakdowns, the challenges he had with loving his children, which sounds terrible to most of us, but is something that so many people go through that are deep in PTSD, depression, and the symptoms of TBI. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. Because in some cases, they'll change a life. In others, they may save a life. So with that being said, I introduce to you... Bryce Hansen. Enjoy. Well, Bryce, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time and jamming your lunch down your throat right before this recording (laughs) and welcome to the behind the shield podcast is delicious i appreciate it man i'm sure my kids are going to want to know where their pizza is when they come home and uh, i'll be like the elf ate it it's a great time (laughs) of year to blame everything or yeah it's a great excuse for everything the elf the magic of christmas I literally missed that whole thing. My son's 15 now, my youngest. And so obviously, you know, he, I think, I think he was like, 
I think he got to 12 years old before he finally figured all the Christmas stuff out, which is pretty good. But um, yeah, but that's, yeah. A, that's a long time. It is. It is. But the whole elf on the shelf, that was genius. That added a whole nother layer. But when you're a sleep deprived firefighter, sometimes you kind of miss some days and you have to make up some fantasies about, well, the elf had to go back to Santa and, you know, do some chores. That's a, <laughs> that's a great excuse. It's a cop out for everything. So we I have a daughter that's 10 and uh, a son that's six and she still believes, but she's maybe it's some of her pre prepubescent but she's starting to look at us like we're kind of crazy. Uh, like, are you sure? But, you know, I, I'm surprised that none of the kids in her class have like been like, yeah, it's not it's not real. You know, especially when they see all the Amazon packages come in. They're like, they're like, what's the gig? <laughs> so, yeah, but my we my wife is from Germany or born in Poland, raised in Germany. And they said they celebrate St. Nicholas Day. I don't know if you guys celebrate that in UK. Well, we call that, you know, another name for him is St. Nick, but no, we just have, we have Christmas Day on the 25th, and then what we have is called Boxing Day, which is the 26th. Okay. Yeah, which is like technically, all, I, I'm assuming, all the presents that either you didn't want or maybe you didn't need, maybe you were giving them away, but it's, yeah, it's the uh, day after that we celebrate as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so we have Clean Your Shoes Day on December 6th. So if you clean your shoes really good, then, you know, you get a little present, and my son's just like, but why? And I'm like, I don't know, man. It's the magic. It's a great excuse. I don't understand, but clean your shoes, bro. <laughs> and we did just buy Advent candles for the first time in forever. That's what I have when I was little. So every day he gets a little piece of chocolate behind the window and just going to help him start getting excited for the Christmas day. Yeah, we do. We have Legos. Yeah, that's what he wanted. But when I ah. was way behind the curve and went to buy them, I was like, yeah, we, we can sell them to you. They'll be there on December 31st. I'm like, yeah, that's not going to work, Amazon, but thank you. <laughs> so, all right. Well, then, very first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? So, I'm uh, in uh, North Dallas. So, I've been here for about five years. Um, and uh, we we moved here, uh, picked picked us almost threw a dart on the map, but we did a couple of years of research to look for where's the next boom uh, coming out of military contracting lifestyle of where can we reinvent ourselves at 40 years old. So that we, when there's, there was just so much economic development and companies moving in here. So we figured now is the time to be a civilian, not really knowing what that means. And so we picked North Dallas uh, kind of like to, hang our hat and so here we are for five years now it's been an amazing uh it's a, it's a great booming location beautiful we well, got a gorgeous house too you were kind enough to host the party yeah, when we all met you. the 7x is the house that contracting built <laughs> so let's start at the very beginning then of your timeline speaking of the military tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic what your parents did and how many siblings sure sure so i was born in cleveland ohio um moved from there to St. Louis uh, when I was probably five or so. Lived there for about 10 years, grew up Midwest, you know, typical Midwest values, um, church, soccer, and corn. Um, that's pretty much all there is to do in the Midwest. Um, and then uh, moved to Indianapolis, uh, suburbs of Indianapolis, Went to, finished up high school there, pretty affluent spot. Uh, my dad originally started as in GE, as a, a engineer designer and then left completely that went to uh, medical and then uh, you know growing up and then we went from a pretty middle class lifestyle up to 
down in the dumps. He got, he was unemployed for about five years. So that was a great learning point for me as well. Uh, and then moved to, then he hit it. Good job. We moved to an affluent neighborhood. And after spending my formidable years, you know, uh, dealing with, uh, you know, extremely long-term unemployment, um, being in an affluent area, also like, I, these are not my kind of people. Um, and I, couldn't wait to get out of there. So one day I was a junior in high school. My mom, she's like, Hey, you got practice tonight. Cause I was, I played, I played club soccer, but I was a competitive swimmer and a horrible swimmer though. Don't ever join a swim team. If you don't actually know how to swim. I was like, who knows, who doesn't know how to swim? This is ended up being, it was the, they were ranked like third in the nation. I'm like, I weigh in over my head. Um, the coach was just like, if you're stupid enough to keep showing up, I won't cut you. And I'm pretty hard headed. Once I make a determination, there's just no quitting. Um, I should have though, looking back on that, that was, <laughs> I mean, it's, not knowing how to swim and the, and you're, you're still doggy paddling 10,000 meters a day. Like I was just like a glutton for punishment. Um, but my mom was a teacher's aide in the high school. And so she's like, I met the nicest gentleman in school today he was hanging outside the cafeteria and he's going to come over and talk to you i'm like weird so she invited an army recruiter to our house she's like my son i think you guys would really hit it off and i'm like literally it's like inviting the fox into the hen house so my my parents are like oh yeah maybe it'll talk some sense into him because i was a wanderer very creative but very undisciplined very um march to my own drummer nobody was going to tell me no. Um, and quite contrarian from an early age where I just rebelled against any system or rules or guidelines. So clearly what, what I needed was more rules and guidelines according to my parents. So I come over and the recruiters in my house and, you know, they're good. That was my first exposure to being sold. Um, and so he's just like, you know, what are you interested in? This is 96. So I'm early pre-war and military in the nineties was very low budget. Um, but also a very defect, uh, zero defect army. So everybody played it safe. And so I was like, when you're in the army, do you get a gun? And like, I don't know anything about the army. My dad was in the merchant Marine, never talked about it. Like he would, I would ask him for help on a math problem. And he would start talking about desalinization of water on a, in an engine boiler room. And I'm like, I just need help with simple math. Right. Um, so I was like, yeah, I would love a gun. He's like, I was like, can I have a gun? He's like, you can definitely have a gun. <laughs> and I was like, can I have like a rifle? He's like, yep. And I was like, and I'm thinking I'm going to outsmart this guy. I'm like, yeah, but what about a machine gun? He's like, bro, I'll give you a cannon. I was like, a cannon? I can have one? He's like, yeah, you can have whatever you want, a tank, everything. And I'm like, yes. He's like, well, you know, I'm not sure you're really ready for one. You got to come downtown and take a test. I'm like, bro, I'm smart, dude. I have horrible grades, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty smart. I just, and I see it with my own son. He's six, can read. And then the teacher calls us for teacher's conference. He's like, I really think he might have a learning disability. Like he can't remember his ABCs from day to day, but I'm like, the kid can read. He's like, I don't remember. I don't remember. It's like, he just finds everything boring. And I'm like, oh, and my wife looks at me. It's like, where did he get that one from? Um, so I go down and I was like, if I got to take a test to get a gun, like sign me up and you're going to 
let me stay in a hotel and feed me. I was like, this is jokes on you guys. Like, so, um, yeah, I go down there and of course I sign up right away and I come home this February Valentine's day of 1996. I come home and I get like, guess what I did today, dad. He's like, what? I was like, I joined the army. He's like, what? Like, you can't do that in high school. Like, I was like, you signed before I even went. Like, what'd you think? He's like, we should have talked about it. I'm like, would that have really mattered? He's like, no, no, it probably wouldn't have mattered. Um, I'm like, you brought the fox into the hen house. And then you're surprised that I signed up. Um, so we, uh, that was, that was good. And I, I ended up being in the reserve. So I had to do finish up high school. So I went to basic training in after my junior year, but before my senior year of high school. And, uh, so I was in the reserves for about a year and a half. And then on, uh, we have a senior prank night in um, high school. And so a bunch of my friends were out, we were trying to drive around, trying to prank people, but in, in, you know, affluent suburbia, there's really not much to prank and there's not much going on four in the morning. You're the only car driving around and all the cops know it's senior prank night. So one of my buddies like, you know, what we should do is we should cement a car to the ground. And I'm like, no, where was a like, great idea. Everybody's like, does anybody know how to mix cement? And I was like, I do. And so we went to, of course, nobody that we dislike. We obviously you're going to do it to somebody you like. So we found another swimmer's house and we, you know, laid bricks around the tire and mixed cement in a trash can and pouring cement. And then one of my, one of the guys I knew that was on his way to West Point was our lookout. And he starts flashing his lights and honking. And we're like, oh, let's go, let's go. It must be the dad's waking up, you know? So we throw all of his stuff in the back of this van and we're, we head out, hightail it out of there. That's when the sirens come on. And we're like, oh, let's go faster. Like horrible idea. <laughs> that horrible always works. <laughs> idea. Yeah, horrible idea. And so we eventually stop and, uh, and uh, you know, our, our getaway driver gets out. He ends up going to West Point two years ahead of me. Uh, cause I am, I eventually make it to West Point, uh, despite all of this. And, um, he ends up going to, uh, special forces. And, um, I think his team, uh, his team had the most valor awards, silver stars and bronze stars with V device in a single day. So, and so when we're getting pulled out, I was like, nobody mentioned this guy's name. Like, do not say it. Like he's got a, great future. We're all degenerates, like let him live his life. Uh, which was funny. Cause you know, when I finally did make it to West point through a very untraditional path, he was one of the first people to come say hi. So that was cool. Um, yeah, so got arrested, had a couple charges against me and, um, my, my parents were the kind the other guys were like, Oh, we'll take care of that with our lawyer. My parents were like, good luck, bro. You know? And my parents always raised us, even from an early age, like, hey, the day you turn 18, you either pay rent or you get out. Like, we're going to make sure you're a fully functioning adult. You know, you know how to clean the house, wash your clothes, do your ironing, write a check. You know, basically everything you need to be self-sufficient when you turn 18. So, hey, you're 18, you got arrested, like, figure it out, hire a lawyer, you know. Um, so paid a good chunk of money and got it knocked down to probation for a year. So I ended up spending a year in inner city Chicago in a Puerto Rican neighborhood called Humboldt Park in the 90s, which uh, 
now it's gentrified and yuppie and but um that was a uh, quite a learning experience to be one of three white kids um scrawny i was i was six foot 140 pounds um one of three white kids in a, in a puerto rican neighborhood of ninety thousand inner city and yep that was a really big eye opener um to what is life all about um and the rules of the road this you know being getting a crash course and being street smart on what side of the street can you be on and safe because you're from that block even though I, I'm not, I wasn't associated with anybody I was actually working uh for a church um for a year during my probation and then it was during that time that um I was still in the reserves and um I was talking to like one of I was talking to my first sergeant. He's like, you don't really fit in here, bro. Like you should probably do your couple years of your reserve time and get out. Like you're not soldier material. And I was like, why is that? And he's like, well, that's the question right there. Like you keep asking why, like soldiers don't ask why you just do it. And um, I'm like, yeah, but like when I take over, like, and I'm in charge, then I need to understand so I can make better decisions. Like, bro, you're never going to be an officer. You're never going to be in charge. Like, you're just not cut out for this world. I was like, okay. I was like, well, I was thinking about going to West Point. And he's just like, well, how do you even know what that is? I was like, they're the dudes that play football. Like, you know, like, he's like, yeah, I've never sent a soldier to West Point and I don't want you around me. So I got a great idea. I'm going to get you to go. I was like, boom, two birds <laughs> with one stone. So my first sergeant, he's like, fill out all the paperwork. Let me know how it's going. So I fill out the paperwork and there's a there's a thing in there there's a thing uh congressional mandate i believe it is um i'm not the, i'm not i wasn't a good soldier and i'm even a, i was a worse west point cadet so i'm going to probably mess up some of the basic facts here from its inception i believe uh fact check me on that one somebody um that 25 percent of the seats for each incoming class for all the academies is reserved for prior service for guys that are enlisted and the best of my ability, best of my recollection, that that quota has never been filled. So if you're an enlisted soldier and you apply, whether it's the Navy, Air Force, whatever, you're, and you're not completely messed up in the head, you're probably going to get a solid look better than, you know, some kid that's a valedictorian from a high school uh, is going to get. And so because most people have to get a senator or a congressman to nominate them. And I went through that process, of course, wasn't getting picked up. Um, they look at my grades they're like, you're, you want to go to West Point. You have a 2.8 in high school. Most kids have like a 4.0 or better. And I'm like, what's up? I just, this is, sounds really cool. And it's free. Um, so when you're enlisted, all you need is your company commander, which as a private in the army, I'm just like, man, my company commander's like God, like little did I know he's like 28 years old. And cause I ended up being that guy and I'm like, I don't know shit about what's going on here, you know, but in, in, as an 18 year old, you're like, this guy's amazing. He's got so much power. So he first sergeant marches me in his room. He's like, Hey, sign this kid's paperwork. Let's get him out of here. And we'll send him to West Point. This is going to look good on my, my end of year evaluation. Commander's like, absolutely not. He's like, not officer material. I will not endorse this character. So I don't fill out any paperwork and I just, nothing happens. I get a call from West Point from a major who's assigned to making sure soldiers 
get through the process and get admitted. And he's like, Hey, what's up? Like, why, why aren't you here? Why am I? Not? And I was like, well, my company commander said, I don't, I'm not, he's not going to sign it. He doesn't think I'm a good fit for West Point. And he's like, give me that guy's number right now. And I happened to be on drill that weekend. And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Here's his phone number. He calls him immediately. And within, I'd say a minute, I'm in the commander's office and he's signing the paper where he's like, you're going to West Point. And I was like, oh, who knew it was that easy? Just drop a dime. Um, so because I had such bad grades in high school, uh, they sent me to the uh, prep school, which was one of the last years they had it in New Jersey at Fort Monmouth, which was a com- for my year was just a complete debacle. We had almost no adult supervision that year, and it was amazing. A uh, bunch of 18, 19, 20-year-olds, some prior service, some had money in their pockets from being soldiers, but most and, – and two miles from the Jersey Shore, like it was just rambunctious. And I think that's – one of the reasons why they moved it up to um, now the prep schools at West Point uh, to keep it a little bit under control because it was just debauchery. Um, one of the best years of my life. And um, so went up to West Point, did oh, four years there, uh, nickeled and dined my way with demerits and hours, uh, made it into what they call the Century Club, which is you've got to walk or work off hundred hours of demerits. Most people do that in one stint, you know, running naked across the courtyard or drinking in the barracks. I just nickel didn't dimed my way there by skipping class or being late or just being insubordinate. I got one time I got, they, somebody gave me two hours just because and they're like, we don't know what you did, but you probably deserve it. So just, just do the hours. I'm like, hey, whatever, man, like I'm, I'm there every weekend anyway. So what's another couple more hours? Um, graduated at the bottom of my class. I think I was 822 out of 866. So stellar individual. <laughs> um, basically Patton, you know, God's gift to leadership, basically not to toot my own horn. Um, and then uh, went over to field artillery over in Korea. Um, so did a year in Korea and then realized I really like being overseas. Uh, exploring new cultures and um, traveling the world. And uh, so I put in paperwork and went over to Germany uh, with the artillery again. And then um, I was just like, man, Europe is the shit. There's so much to do here and uh, such an awesome military experience. What an education to live and travel different cultures to see, uh, to break free from my upbringing in the Midwest of, and a lot of times, a lot of people, I heard this fact that I remember when um, something like 10% of Americans have a passport. And, he, and so even slightly less actually use it. And most people around the world, and even the US, which is in Europe, well, US is a very highly mobile society. But most people, the majority of people, fact check this one, live and die within like 20 miles of where they were born. And they never go anywhere, you know, like. And I was just like, and I've been, I don't know, 40, 45 countries. My daughter's 10 years old. She's been to 15 countries. And I'm just like, there's just such a unique perspective and an education, even if you're not book smart, because heavens forbid somebody asked me to do a simple math equation. Um, and uh, But understanding people and dynamics and the emotional and social intelligence that goes into so much in our lives, whether that's 
in leadership or, you know, working with soldiers or in business, just being able to relate and to listen and to understand that everybody is suffering something. Everybody's fighting something. And I, and I, my, one of the best things my dad ever taught me, because he's like, you're, you know, my dad's got my, both my parents have master's degrees and super smart. And they're like very much rich dad, poor dad, like education is the path to the future. Um, and, but fully knowing this kid is not, this kid's got zero path to an academic future, despite them desperately wanting to be something academic, like a lawyer. Um, and so he was just like, plus I was on my own at 18. They're like, they weren't going to pay for anything. So they're like, listen, we, we're not going to pay for you to go to college, but all the books that you would read in college are in that public library. So as long as you read, you can, you can make yourself whatever you want to be. Um, this is also pre-internet days, um, which I know it's hard for some people to relate to. I know you remember that the dial-up tone and like pixelated picture, like slowly coming up and you're like, I think I, I think I see some skin. And, yeah, exactly. Um, every, everybody's first website, when they first went there was like playboy.com. Let's see what happens. And nothing happened because it was so slow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 10 minutes later, you're like, oh man. Anyways, um, so uh, it was just su such a great experience living over the, overseas. Um, and while I was in Germany the first time uh, in artillery, we went to Iraq, uh, went there. Uh, we we're going to get go for 12 months. And we got re-flagged um, as infantry. And as one of the few uh, lieutenants in my battalion that ha had gone to ranger school, um, which isn't super popular for artillery guys. Um, so we got reflagged as infantry and some of the guys, one battery kept their guns, the artillery pieces. And then um, two, two batteries went to basically motorized infantry. And most of the senior lieutenants got promoted to, or picked up for staff. And then I was lucky enough as a senior lieutenant, cause I had gone to ranger school um, to, to take control over a, an infantry you know, a platoon of artillery soldiers and get them spun up on how to do basic infantry tactics. Um, so we were there and then I had met my wife, uh, while I was, um, in Germany, uh, then to be future wife. And the way I met her was I was living with my buddy in his apartment. He had gone to West Point with me and, um, was in Korea with me and we were traveling the world together. And I crashed on his his couch when I first got there and he lived right downtown, right on the little strassa that has all the clubs and the cafes and everything, which is of course in a university town uh, where we were, was where all the girls were hanging out. And I'm like, why would I get my own place? Like, this is a gold mine. Um, so um, we would go hang out in the, the happening cafe, which would turn into a cocktail bar at night. And it was one of the few places in early 2000 that had free Wi-Fi. So what, yeah, that's a gold mine. So we would spend all, eat all of our meals there um, and spend our weekends there and pretty much just park. And a lot of, got to know the owner, got to know all the bartenders and the cooks and everything. So whenever food would come back or they'd make an extra drink, they'd be like, Hey, you want to try this? You want to have this? And so we were eating and drinking for the most part for free. Um, and all of our friends were coming, they would cycle in and we got to know or date, uh, all the waitresses. So like we were, this was our second home. 
if not our primary one. Little did, did I know that my roommate at the time uh, wasn't paying our utility bill. His feeling was, is if they wanted me to pay it, they would have wrote it in English. And uh, so <laughs> they cut off, they cut off our supply and we're like, look, we're going to the field in like two months. We'll be gone for two months. And then we're going to come back and we're going to go to Iraq. So who really needs lights and hot water? We can, you know, we can read by candlelight and moonlight. and We'll just hang out in the cafe until they close. So I started spending a ton of time in the cafe um, reading. And um, that's where my wife saw me. She's like, was an American that reads like, that's weird. Most Americans soldiers are like drunk and throwing up under the table and ditching on their checks. Um, so that's what got her attention. And I've been trying to get her attention for months. And that was like the fact that I had a book in my hand was like blew her mind. Um, so we started dating. And then we, when I went to Iraq, uh, I, I kind of known, I was like, yeah, this is the girl for me. So about nine months into it, I postponed my R&R, my two weeks break from war as long as I could because I wanted to get married. So we flew back. We flew to New York uh, and got married um, uh, out in Montauk where uh, my family uh, grew up uh, working as lifeguards. And I was raised there in the summertime sleeping on the beach in a campsite. Um, so for me, that was a real special place. And so that's where we wanted to get married. Um, and then as soon as I got back to Iraq and they were like, Hey, I think I was like second or third day back. Like, Hey, we're going to extend you for three more months. I'm like, shit. Cause we're, you know, we started laying plans for like our real wedding ceremony. And they're like, and then two days later, they're like, Hey, the reason why we extended you is we're sending you guys down to Ramadi. And I'm like, Oh, that's the real war. I was up in I was up in Talafar after it had been cleared out, and so I'm like, "Whoa, we're going to the real war now!" And um, that's when I first started kind of lying to my wife or just leaving out very key details about what I was doing in the military. Up until that point, I was pretty transparent and pretty jovial individual, very carefree, very just like, "Hey, man, I'm God's gift to the military." Despite every, all along my journey, people tell me you are not. <laughs> um, and me, for the most part, proving them right, but always trying to prove them wrong. I remember showing up to Ranger School, and even all the guys I had gone to West Point with, all the guys that had chosen infantry, because I was like, I'm not going to infantry. That's stupid. People shoot at you. Uh, and I showed up at Ranger School, and people were like, what are you doing here? Like, my best friends, like, you shouldn't be here right now. This is for serious people. I'm like, I'm just going to give it a sh shits and giggles. Let's see what happens. Um so, of course, I had irritable bowel syndrome from the stress and I was shitting my pants solid for the like 45 of the 60 some days. It wasn't until I was in Florida phase and I had my first real breakfast meal uh, that I actually like had my first normal bowel movement. And I was all through bending and mountain phase. I was shitting my pants. And uh, that was an amazing. If you haven't picked up at the, uh, up until this point, I'm very, I have a very self-deprecating humor. Like, <laughs> Like I'm, even about your I own colon no problem. I have no <laughs> problem. Like being overly transparent about all the things that are wrong with me. Um, but it really was when I went to Ramadi was when I started what, which we'll talk about later, I'm sure is coping mechanisms, which was shutting down isolation, compartmentalizing, um, emotions and fear, um, as a way to get through the event or to the next day. 
Um, and we'll and circle back to that later. Um, don't let me forget because it's 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 a very big important part that I just in the last month or so have realized something very important about coping mechanisms. Um, so uh, while I was in Iraq, uh, we were co-located with um, an ODA, which is a special for Army Special Forces or Green Berets, as they're commonly known as. Um, Operational Detachment Alpha, which is, you know, like Mr. T, basically the A-team. Um, so we were co-located with one of those guys and we started um, working up. Uh, they're like, hey, you got a Ranger tab. Go talk to them. They're your people. I'm like, dude, they're intimidating. They got beards and shit and like cool guns. Um, they're like, no, nah, you, you go talk to them. So I was assigned to go be the liaison, which whatever that means. But I built a relationship with them. Like, oh, just like us, but they get to throw grenades and flashbangs. And I'm like, this is cool. And they're like, you like this stuff? I'm like, yeah, yeah. Is the same pitch that the recruiter at my house. I was so going to say, you like guns? Like, you like cannons? You like guns? <laughs> you want some cooler guns? You want a mini gun? You want to throw some, you want to, so, you're like, I'm like, you want to blow shit up? I'm like, yes, yes, I do. And they're like, then you probably should try it. And I'm like, that's it. Like me wanting to blow stuff up. They're like, well, you're artillery, but you don't actually see the explosion most of the time. Like, you want to be like, up? I'm like, dude, hook, line, and sinker. I'm like, I'm in. And they're like, you know, most people say that, but they don't actually show up to tryouts and they don't make it. But, you know, and they kind of blew me off. But that was always the, that was always the precipice for me to like push through. I had to prove to people and to the deniers and the, the people that were like, you're not going to make it. This isn't for you. And I'm like, as soon as they were like, mm, you know, most people say they're going to try out, but they don't. And I'm like, oh, I'm going. And so when I I went through, did the physical and everything like that, and I was kind of, I didn't say anything to my wife. We get back, have the wedding, and then um, we find out that our unit is closing down. And they're going to get reflagged, get sent back to the United States. But I was on a three-year contract to Germany, and I had only done about a year and a half of it, maybe two years. And they're like, well, you still owe a year in your German contract. So you got to go find a new artillery unit. And the only other one that I was qualified to go to was gearing up to go to Afghanistan in like six months. And they already knew they were going for an 18-month deployment. And um, yeah, right. And I was like, are you shitting me? And my wife was like, I did not sign up for to marry you for you to be gone. Like, the, how are we married if you're gone all the time? And you don't get married to be apart from each other. And that's, I think, why you have a, such an extremely high divorce rate, whether it's in law enforcement, firefighters, um, military. You, you don't, you, it's hard to build a relationship together in oneness. You know, the Bible talks about two shall become one when you're on very different life tracks uh, and, you're, and you're compartmentalizing information to quote unquote protect the other person. You know, that was a big issue with me. And I was the probably one of the most open guys that talked to his wife or significant other, let them know what was going on, you know, within the parameters of operational security. Um, but most guys don't say anything. And they say they don't do it because they want to protect the other person. But it really is just a coping mechanism. So where they can just shut it off and just do what they need to do. But by talking about it, you open yourself up to conversational questions. And then you open yourself up to emotions because your significant other knows how to push your buttons in a good way and a bad way um, because they care for you and they are worried about you, but you can't, you don't have the luxury to worry. You just have to execute. It was, um, so anyways, 
when I get, I tell her that and I was like, listen, I got to get ready to go to Afghanistan for 18 months, but it'll probably be okay. Cause I'm, you know, as a captain and O three at that point, um, I had been platoon leader for way too long, like 26 months. Um, so I was very lucky in that regards. Um, as far as, you know, junior military officer jobs go, I never saw a day of staff. And then I was like, so I'll probably be okay. Cause I'll probably be on staff. I owe them that. And then, um, or I could do this whole special forces tryout thing. She's like, what is it? I was like, I don't know. It's just some dudes and they know how to fight really good. And it's not a lot of them, but she's like, well, wouldn't it be better if you were like platoon or company, you got like 120 guns versus like 12. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, soldiers don't really know how to shoot that good. And these guys are really good. And they go, yeah. And they got beards. (laughs) Not that I wanted to have a beard, but I was just like, I liked, I liked the idea that they were contrary. Right. I saw my company commander and my first sergeant, my brass talking shit about them. And I'm like, Oh, I like that. I like to be the antagonist. I like to be contrary. And like, and so I was like, well, I'm, I'm just going to vote with my feet and I'm going to walk over there and see what happens. And my wife was just kind of like, well, I don't know what it is and you don't know what it is, but I bet you got to be in really good shape. So she got me on a three a day workout schedule. She wouldn't let me drive anywhere. She's like, if it's within running distance, like five miles, you're running. Like I'll meet you at the restaurant. You're running to the restaurant. You're running home. You can, she would, I would run in and now we're honeymoon. This is honeymoon. Like we just got married. And so I'd eat breakfast, we'd honeymoon, and then she'd be like, so why are you on the couch? Like, you should go run or something. And she'd kick me out of the house. She'd be like, bye, come back in four hours. And so, um, yeah, she she kicked, she was my personal trainer. She kicked my ass. She's like, because it's either this, not knowing what this is, or you're going back to Afghanistan. So I went into uh, selection. 24 days of tryouts and I got one blister in between my two toes. Like my, I was fucking rock hard when I showed up. I'm like, this is, I'm having a blast. This is so much fun. I'm creative. Like there's nobody yelling at me. Like just, just execute whatever you think right is. Hopefully it is because good luck. I mean, I, I seen people's feet look like raw, come off the long, the quote unquote long walk. And they, or the short, long, it's not as long as keg. Um, but I saw people pull off their boots. Like it looked like raw hamburger. It's disgusting. Um, I seen, I seen cats lose their rifle and I'm like, oh, I'm sure that's going to be okay. I'm sure the, you know, I saw all kinds of stuff and presumably this is the best of the best. And I'm like, this, this is really fun. I like it. Can I stay longer? Um, and it was the first time where I kind of started getting the hint of like, I, I kind of like this army thing. I'm kind of good at it. Um, and I started coming into my element. Um, and, um, because I remember my last counseling in artillery was, you know, I got pulled in by the brass and they're like, Hey, we need you to like get in line here. And, uh, you, you don't play well with other officers. And I'm like, they suck. Like, I don't know what you want me to tell you. Um, but yeah, so not a good attitude to have, but it, I was being very natural. Um, so when I went to, went to try out, made it, um, went to the Q course, went to captain's course, went to the Q course at Fort Bragg. Um, that was about, I don't know, 18, 18, 19 months or so to get all the way through there. Um, 
picked up horrible French halfway through my French course. My teacher was just like, do you speak Spanish? I was like, well, I lived in a Puerto Rican neighborhood for a while. Like I can, I can habla a little bit. He's like, are you just saying Spanish words with a fake French accent? And I'm like, yep. He's <laughs> like, you're not far off, but you let's try to actually apply some brain power here. Um, so I was always, you know, the guy, I, I have a firm, I'm a firm believer. If you're going to have a team project or whether that's in school or in business, you got to have a really smart, lazy person because they'll find the most efficient, expedient way to be done with it so they can go goof off or do whatever it is that they want to do. So I was that in most groups. And I was like, whether that was me going to buy the pizza and put my name on the title page or me finding the most expedient way to get done with the boring stuff. Um, so uh, went back to, I asked to go back to Germany. Uh, so I went to the 110, um, so 1st Battalion, 10th Group over in Stuttgart, Germany. Um, got assigned there for three years, um, multiple, um, joint, uh, training programs, uh, whether that was with, uh, we spent some time with, uh, Morocco, uh, the Polish, the Germans, um, the Dutch or, um, the Belgians, Lithuanians, Slovakians, uh, Croatians, and the Danish, definitely, uh, Polish, Danish, and, uh, Croatians were my favorite guys. Um, the Jaeger Corps uh, up in Denmark, we did a combat deployment with them. Um, that was their first combat deployment. So they came along and cut their teeth with us. And they were like just Nordic slayers. They're fucking beast of men. And I love those cats. Uh, the Croatians, um, the BSD uh, from Croatia was their tier one unit. Awesome cats. Um they're like, you're going to war. That's cute. Like we, we were in war when we were teenagers. Like, what do you need to know? And I was just like, oh my gosh, that was the time when the Croatians were the ones that mentioned it. And they're like, we were doing a big joint. We were three months with them. Um, and we're with the Polish, the three, you know, and, um, the Croatian guys were with us the whole time. Polish guys would kind of ro rotate teams in with us. And the Polish guys were, uh, drinking one night. They had this Rakia, uh, which they were, they were homemade uh, alcohol. It tastes like diesel. And um, I wasn't a big drinker. Um, I would do enough just to be social. Um, I started drinking a little bit when I came home from Iraq. That was, you know, I was 25, and not a drinker. Like people are like, how do you not drink? And I'm like, ah, I just don't like the taste of it. You know, it's an acquired taste. And I don't like the, I don't like the buzz. I don't like losing control. Um, and so I would, I would drink with the, um, the Poles and the Croats. And uh, we're sitting around talking and they're like, you know, I like you. And they were, the Croatians were like, we like you guys. We think you guys are the shit, but we'll definitely kill you if we're told to. And I'm like, it was an aha moment. I'm like, yeah, we're friends, but because we're friends, but we're also loyal to our country. And I was just, it was a very unique conversation and everybody's just kind of nodding their heads. Like we're having like a serious geopolitical philosophical debate while everybody's drinking diesel rakia and i was like and they wanted our ammo cans and i'm like what do you want all of our extra ammo cans like well we turn these into stills and i'm like i'm not so sure the lead <laughs> content is really what you should be making your stills out of I'm like no 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 the 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 uh, vodka the the alcohol kills that off i'm like i'm not so sure it it kills off heavy metals like i'm not like but um no, I had a wonderful, and again, as I was saying before, traveling and working with people, it's the education and understanding where people are coming from and under, and seeing 
yeah, they're, they're not from my tribe, but they kind of are a parallel tribe, but seeing their struggles in life, their dynamics uh, as fathers, as husbands, as teammates, and the things that they struggle with is very much a universal um, uh, issue. And the, and, and the way they cope with it is also very interesting. Um, and so I, I was exposed very early on in my uh, my special operations, special forces career to those dynamics and those forces of pain and coping. Um, not necessarily seeing it around me myself, though, not thinking that I was in it, not that I was coping, not that I had pain. Um, because as the officer, my job was to keep the ship going forward as at all costs, as fast as possible. So there's guys um, that were on my team. And I just found out months ago, you know, listening to a podcast that one of my guys on the team with me in special forces, you know, almost took his life, um, you know, and it, he was saved, but like within minutes. Um, and I, and I, I sent him a message. I was like, I had no idea, bro. Like I failed you as a leader. Like I should have been a better leader and seen that. And I didn't. And I just, I just didn't know. I mean, we're, we, we talk so much nowadays about uh, post-traumatic stress and how much we know of post-traumatic stress is actually TBI or CTE. Um, but we, we lumped it all under it every year. We're learning more and more. So rewind the clock 10, 12 years ago, nobody knew shit about, you know, if you weren't the guy who got blown up, we didn't understand blast waves. We don't understand all the concussion that's going through. We don't understand. But little did we know also about the effects of prolonged stress um, and what that does to your hormonal glands and what CTE and TBI does to your hormonal glands. And then the, cas the cascading effects of low testosterone on people's uh, ability to regulate emotions and physicality. Um, and it's just a, it's just a cocktail of, um, being mixed up in the head and not knowing it and being a high performer, being on, you know, one of the premier teams, um, getting all, I mean, we're just fucking crushing it in Afghanistan. And I know a lot and almost any team can say that, um, I'm extremely proud of what we did and we, what we were able to do and at what it, what we at the price that we paid to do it, which was very low. We, uh, my team sergeant, to his credit, was very uh, a very dynamic individual. Uh, he was um, and a very skilled uh, shooter. Uh, from all intents and purposes, people would think he, you know, he was just as one person once said, you know, that I know that's associated that I'm associated with now. He's like, I've killed more people than cancer. And this is one of those kind of guys. And, but his number one rule when he took, came on the team with me was, you know, if it doesn't feel right, we just walk away. Like nothing's worth losing a life. Nothing's worth having a war crime. Nothing's worth like, we're going to play this by the book. We're all going home. Um, and there were some things guys brought from other teams, um, mentalities, um, and different things. And I'm like, and I'm sure some of that stuff happened. I was the officer. So I, I still find out to this day because people would drive through crew cross country and they'll crash at my house. I had my engineer, uh, engineer crash at my house for a month. And we're, you know, we're sitting around talking. He's like, Oh, you remember such? I'm like, what? I don't remember that. And he goes, Oh yeah. Oh, you didn't know about that. Oh, we must've <laughs> hid that from. And I'm like, 10 years later, I'm realizing 
the antics that some of my guys did behind my back. And I was like, I thought I was a good leader and I had my finger on the pulse. Little did I know, I had no idea. I spent, um, I'm going to jump around a little bit. I spent a month in Ukraine earlier this year in um, April. And uh, my former company commander in special forces called me up and he's like, hey man, what you doing? I was like, not much right now. He goes, we're going to Ukraine. I'm going to go to Poland. So as soon as I get to Poland, um, but he, he was, and I owed him, um, you, you, I think you met him. Uh, have you met Roby? No, uh, we've talked, um, over, you know, zoom yeah. after they did the recce. Yeah. So I, you're going to meet him on this trip. Uh, Roby is, uh, I owe him so much. I owe him a debt. I really can't pay back. Um, but when he made, he called me and he said, listen, we have an opportunity to do some good in Poland and Ukraine doing, um, medical supplies and humanitarian aid and getting it to the right people. Um, and I looked at my wife and my wife is from communist Poland. And so she might have a bone to pick with the Russians as well. Um, and she's like, listen, and she, my wife's got some great one-liners. Um, and she said, uh, she goes, you have the ability, you have the opportunity. Therefore you have the moral obligation to, to help. And you owe this guy. So I was just like fucking sold. I thought it was going to be a hard sell for her, but she's, she knows Roby. And so when I, he took command halfway through my deployment in Afghanistan and um, being the contrarian that I was, and we were really getting after it in Afghanistan. Um, and we were, we were catching dudes and we had a policy of no shots. If we could capture the guy, that's what we wanted to do. A lot of teams wanted to eliminate, you know, whack. I'm like, it's whack-a-mole. You can't, if you eliminate them, if you kill them, they're immediately going to promote somebody. If you capture them and put them in prison, they're kind of still a placeholder in the hierarchy. Our philosophy was it's better to capture them, arrest them, and use the Afghan legal system and help, you know, second, third order consequences. So we, we always, that was all of our thing. If we can't go into a guy and roll him up and capture him safely, then sometimes we just walk, we back off because we'll get him again. Um, and we, I think we, we, we grabbed seven high value targets, seven or eight high value targets that were what we call JPELD, um, without a single shot fired. Like it was just, it was phenomenal, right? Like my combat experience of being in massive gunfights, not in special forces. Like you just don't have the guns. You got 10, 12 guys, but, to be fair, we were augmented with the Danish guys who were awesome. Um, and we had a Romanian uh, attachment as well. And we had a couple of liaisons from like Slovakia and things like that. So I actually had a pretty robust, I had about 40 guys under my command, all awesome, awesome caliber individuals. Um, but we had that philosophy. And um, on when Roby took command, uh, we were, we weren't, what we were doing on the battlefield was not necessarily in line with what the command thought we should be doing. They thought we should be doing more classes and we're teaching people. We partnered with more Afghan units, um, the NDS, the ISU, the PRC. Um, nobody's going to know what that means unless they've served in Afghanistan. Um, and, but they expected us to have more you know, whiteboards and PowerPoint presentations to the Afghans. I'm like, yeah, we're doing that, but we got to, let them have confidence and that they know they can do this on their own. So we were going after lots of targets. And as, as you take down some targets, amazingly, all you build trust, 
and all the intelligence starts to come pouring out. And so we were we were getting really good, really good organic intelligence work. Um, and but it wasn't in the flavor of the day, right? Um, so when Roby took over, he was a prior enlisted guy. And uh, being prior enlisted myself, and then we related. And I, he said, listen, he came out, he came out to our camp, and he said, uh, listen, you're going to go from the upper brass perspective. You're going to go from last place. Now, mind you, we had been have we had just been crushing it, but it wasn't the political. I wasn't playing the politics game that I should have as an officer, right? I was one. Of, I was as best as I could be. I was one of the boys. Um, and I know some guys are going to listen to this and be like, you're, you are fucking summer help. I still, in, I still have guys coming living at my house. I still have my teammates were on chat. Um, you know, my, my 18 Delta was just at my house three weeks ago for a week. He flew in from Germany just to hang out for a week. Like I had a really unique bond with my team and, uh, but I wasn't playing the officer game. I wasn't playing the politics game and. My number one role, my first day in special forces, my, one of my senior medics came to me, he goes, you know, you know what you need. He picked me up at the airport and he goes, you know what your job is? I said, yeah. And I gave him the book answer about being the 18 alpha, blah, blah, blah leader. He's like, shut the fuck up. And mind, he picked me up at the airport with my wife and my wife's like, what? This is her like her rude awakening to special forces. He's like, your job is to be a bullet sponge. You soak up all the politics and the bullshit. So we can do our job. We're the professionals. You're here just for a time. You, your career be damned. You protect us at all costs and we'll do some amazing shit and you'll look good. You'll get the credit for it. Um, and I had an, my first team sergeant, I had to write up my um, my OER, my officer evaluation report. And it's like a support form. So you, you send it up to your commander to remind him politely, these are all the good things that I did this year and you should you should rate me pretty highly. And my team sergeant, he goes, what are you working on? So I told him, he's like, he's like, no, no, you're not writing that. And I was like, yeah, I kind of have to. He goes, nope. He goes, you're going to write down everybody's name on this team. That's your support form. If our reputation of as individuals, as a team, aren't the bona fides and the credentials, then you've already lost because you didn't do your job. And I was like, that was so profound of, of you know, of Using the ideas of extreme, Jocko talks about or servant leadership, and it's always from the standpoint of the leader serving the team, right? But I'm having this conversation with my team sergeant. He goes, "But because you did that, our reputations serve your interest as well." So it was like this symbiotic relationship. It wasn't just a idealistic, self-sacrificial role as a servant leader. It's if you do that and you surround yourself with the right people. Um, they'll take care of you as well, just with their reputation alone. They're not going to give you an attaboy. Nobody's going to walk up to the officer or the leader and say, Hey, you're doing a really kick-ass job right now, boss. No, you know, you just, you get moments like that and you're like, Oh shit. Um, they welcomed me into the tribe. Um, it was a very profound moment for me. Um, and, uh, man, this conversation is making me think about names I haven't thought about in a long time. Um, that I've let slip from my contact and yeah, that's sad. I shouldn't, I should, I should be a better friend. Um, but that moment right there where I just said, and I had like this introspective moment, I want to talk about that too, because that's just happened in the last month as well. And I know that's why we're going to talk. Um, 
But yeah, because I almost got the tears on that one, um, which would never have happened the last 15 years. Um, because one of my coping mechanisms is just shut off my emotions, right? You don't have, when you're in that moment where you're going after a target, you don't have time to fear. You don't have time for loss. You don't have time for guilt. You don't have time to second guess yourself. You just execute. Um, and so came back from uh, Afghanistan. Um, and then I decided I'm probably not ready for a real job. I probably need to like a prisoner. I, I equated military service as like being a career criminal, right? A life sentence is 20 years. Um, I did 16 years in the military, but I, I knew the lingo. I knew what to wear. I knew the games. I knew the politics. I knew the gangs. I knew the, who the head honchos were. I knew whose ring you had to kiss and blah, blah, blah. And I knew the punishment, the justice, you know, effectively this jailhouse justice, if you buck the system. So I, there are a lot of parallels between prison life and the military, right? It, it's, you're institutionalized. And so I was like, if that's my truly my belief, what happens to the recidivism rate of criminals? Like there's a revolving door, but I can't come back. So I need a halfway house. I need somebody to kind of like mentor me through. I'm not quite ready to be a full civilian. So I was like, defense contracting, genius. Like I'm technically a civilian, but I'm still getting after it. You know, and um, I could, I decided not to go back to theater. Um, I ended up taking a job um, via uh, another special forces guy that I met by chance, my original roommate from uh, Germany, um, whose couch I had been crashing on. He had moved to Dubai. And so while we were in Germany, we're like, let's, let's check Dubai out. I've heard good things. This is back in uh, 2010. Um, so you could still park your car on the beach. You can't do that anymore. It's, it's, it's been magnificent, the scope and scale that they built. Um, so we went down there and we're hanging out and he, and he's like, let me introduce you to some other, uh, green berets. So I talked to some guys and they're like, Hey, you want to come live here? I was like, yeah, like, I mean, what do I got to do? And they're like, yeah. And they telling me about the job and how much it pays. I'm like, I'm about to quit the, like, just never show up. I'm just going to live here. And they're like, just give us a call in a couple of years. So, um, ended up getting a job, um, in Dubai. I, uh, got out of the army because they, I was getting promoted to the next level, but then you're forced off of a team. So you're, 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 you're leaving tactical life. You're leaving team life, which is the pinnacle. And then you go into staff and supporting. And I spent the last year in special forces, uh, kind of getting a taste of that as the XO or executive officer. And it sucks. It sucks doing plans and watching others to go have the fun and watching your boys all of a sudden build relationships with a new officer. And I'm like, who the fuck is that guy? He can't fit my shoes. Like, fuck that guy. How could they hang out with him? Why are they having beers with him on a weekend? They should be having, but they move on. You know, the ball keeps rolling. Like you think you're important. That was, that was a big moment for me. Like, you know, they're going to miss me. I'm the shit. I have such an unhealthy level of ego. And I was like, the, the world will come. And you almost start wishing that the world collapses to prove that you were the shit, but it, do, it never <laughs> does. It just keeps on rolling. And I think that's a good thing. I think it's, you know, to realize you're not that important, you know, like the day you retire, the, the job keeps going. The day you die, you know, people cry and, and everything. But within an hour at your, you know, your funeral wake, somebody's going to crack a joke and somebody's going to smile. Like the world keeps moving forward as it should. But maybe we shouldn't take ourselves so seriously, you know, and not kill ourselves literally in in the military 
whether that's via suicide or for somebody else's fake career that they're going to leave. I had plenty of guys, especially, and I saw this also in Ukraine, guys were volunteering from all over the world to, to pick up arms for the Ukrainians, and they were getting thrown into units that had no business at the pointy end of the spear. And guys were calling me and they're like, hey, can I get one of those humanitarian jobs? Like, these people are going to get us killed. Like, they're out here for their ego. They have no idea what they're doing. Um, so, oh, I didn't wrap up Roby's story. So Roby uh, took command and uh, they were going to fire me on the spot um, because we didn't bring our berets with us to the change of command. So I mean, there's a whole host of other things. I had, I had multiple strikes against me as a commander, uh, a couple letters of reprimand and things like that. Um, some of it for on my own and some of it just for protecting my guys and just taking the blunt. Um but he said, you know what? I like what you guys are doing, what you're, what you're after. I like your philosophy. He's so he goes, he went to toe. He's like, uh, this is my first day of command. Like you can fire me right now. If you fire him, you fire me. And, you know, I kind of put the battalion commander in a tough spot. And I was just like, and I was, it was such a profound moment for me of here's a guy who's, you know, climbed up all this and paid his dues and he's going to fall on his sword. I go, well, that's leadership. And I, and I, and I, I, I developed the idea that leadership sometimes in when people climb the ropes and they climb the ladder of military or whatever it is, I can't talk about police or fire or anything like that, but I've seen it in corporate world, guys that climb the ladder, it's either on the backs of other people or they just haven't had a chance yet to fall on their sword, but everybody's got a chance to fall on their sword somewhere for one of their followers and they either do, or they let the other person fall on it and they just climb over the dead bodies. But here was a moment where Roby was willing to lay down his career for me, who's somebody who was this is his first day in command. He didn't know me. And uh, I told that was one of the first stories that I told to my wife. Um, when I can't, every time I come home from a deployment, we go somewhere on vacation. And every night I tell her about a different mission. I kind of like walk her through it. So I'm exercising or what I thought I was ex, ex, helping her relate to what I was coming from. And I told her that story. So when the opportunity came and he called me, he's like, Hey, I need your help in Ukraine. I was like, my wife, she's like, you owe him. And I was like, I know I do. I owe him. Um, and so I was happy to do that. Um, so spent five years in uh, Dubai working operations. Um, and then I got pulled over in the regular army and then I got pulled over, uh, to special operations command, uh, teaching there, their junior leadership program, um, really helping restructure, the way uh, they they worked, they were um, top down. You do what you're told, no more, no less. You see that with the Russians now. You know, the officers have to come and do everything. So we were trying to reboot and have create a healthy discussion between top down guidance and bottom up refinement. Um, you know, the tactical guy on the ground saying, "Hey, boss, like I love that plan, but you know, logistically, what about this? I'm just going to take this time or this resources and having that just." The idea of having that conversation to come up with the best plan possible versus just Noah, well, he must be know what he's talking about. Um, so I, I really like that. Um, there was there were very real world consequences because of what was going on in Yemen. All my students uh, were the two days, three days after they graduated my finishing course, which was 100% geared towards uh, combat operations. Um, they'd be in Yemen and. Um, so I was very, me and my guy, my, my team, I had a, 
guy named Seamus from Northern Ireland who had fled the troubles and gone to the United States and joined the special forces and um, is now back living in Northern Ireland. And um, which was very interesting because uh, we had two British guys, two para guys right across the hall. And every now and then maybe we'd all sit around to have lunch together, but maybe like once a year they'd, uh, Hey, Seamus, uh, do you know the street corner of such and such? He'd be like, yep. And they're like, were you anywhere near that on such and such date? And you could see the animosity 20, 30, 40 years later, still, um, had, all the wounds haven't been forgiven. Um, and, uh, that's something that we'll tie into, um, of coping and wounds and forgiveness. Um, and then I had, I had a really cool cat from uh, Australia uh, named Sean uh, that was in, from uh, the commandos. So we had a really good uh, mission of getting guys ready for combat operations. And we could empathize with what they're, what they were about to face, thinking that they knew what they were doing, thinking they knew what to expect and realizing um, without being, you know, been there, done that kind of guy, but like, um, hey man, when you get back, let's talk. We'll have a different conversation because right now I got to pump you up and you know some propaganda, some motivation. But when you come back, we'll have a different conversation about healing and coming home. And I thought I knew what I was talking about, you know. And I still talk to some of my cats. You know, they visit the United States, or I was over in the UAE earlier this year um, in January working on some Afghan uh, relocation, Afghan rescue stuff. I'd have dinner with some of my former students and they're like, yeah, no, we get it now. Like we understand. We had a block of instruction that we'd give on um, mental resiliency and um, PTSD and things like that. Because what we found was if you talk about it ahead of time, we have lower rates of it because you know what to expect versus, you know, PTSD being, being completely caught off guard. Um, when I say PTSD, I want to apply my own definition, um, which is, I, I think the number one cause of PTSD is actually car accidents. And um, in the in the global war on terror, a lot of it was driving down the roads and waiting to be blown up. So really what PTSD is to me in my experience, I'm no clinical doctor, is the fear of the unknown and realizing you're not in control of the your present or your future. And that freaks people out. Nobody knows the day they're going to die or how. And when people, because everything we do, whether, you know, it's wear a, a, a mask, you know, for COVID, which everybody now knows didn't do shit. And I don't want to get flagged for misinformation, but it's all, it's psychology. It's exert control over the unknown. Nobody knew what Corona was going to be. Nobody knew. But if you do this, you're going to be okay. And everybody's like, oh, okay, good. No anarchy. Like, you know, but that's really what PTSD is, is and not knowing your car is going to get hit or sideswiped or head on. Um, that, that realization that you're not the captain of your own ship. You're not the master of your domain. There's so much left to fate and chance. There's so many variables we can't account for and control. That's really what PTSD is, the realization of that, because it smacked you upside the head. Um, and so I talked to a lot of my former guys uh, about that and incidents they've been in and, and how they're coping with that. So if you don't mind, I'm going to skip to about a month ago. Yeah, let's is do it. Right? Absolutely. All right. We'll come back. I got some things I want to ask you, but we'll come back to those after. Okay, I'm on a flow. Stop yeah, me no. anytime. No, no, no. I, I love not, flow. I'm, makes... not a, I'm not a talker. You might have picked up on that. <laughs> it makes editing super easy for me as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when I moved to Dallas about five years ago, um, you know, when you're in this tight knit community, 
of operators, then, you know, people are like, oh, you know, so-and-so, you know, so-and-so, of course, I don't know them. If they weren't on my team, I don't know them. Um, but I got a guy that was uh, local here, former SEAL Team 6 guy. He's all over the internet and TV shows and whatnot in typical SEAL fashion. I give him shit for that. <laughs> and, uh, and he really is a quiet professional, um, which is, uh, and I know people are going to listen to this and be like, don't you work for a Navy SEAL? I give him shit too on a daily basis um, about the whole quiet professional thing in their books and their movies and TV shows. Um, but, um, he, we, we, we developed a relationship, started out around business. Um, but he left the business that he was in, which was physical and cybersecurity, which is where I'd come to Dallas to do a startup doing the exact same thing. Um, and he's like, I'm going to go get my degree, uh, get my MBA because I really want to help this charity that I started um, and get it going. You know, I got to be smarter on business and how to run an organization. And so we started talking about his charity and what they were doing. And they were, they were doing treatments, um, psychedelic treatments, uh, for veterans to combat PTSD. And I'm like, I don't have PTSD. I did five years in a halfway house. I'm good. Like that's good for some people, but PTSD is for crybabies. Um, and, people who probably never actually saw combat, but they're just, they want to, they want to, they want to be victim. They want to have victimhood status and they want to milk the VA system of, uh, you know, um, of money or whatever. Little did I know how little I knew. I didn't even know what tinnitus was. I was in artillery or infantry and I didn't know what tinnitus was. One day I'm sitting in, in this house. So we're talking about within the last five years, and I'm looking up at the ceiling and my wife's like, what are you looking at? And I was like, I can hear the electricity running through the wires. Like, she's like, what? She's like, do you think you have some kind of like X-Men mutant superpower? You can <laughs> hear electricity. I was like, what? She's like, riddle me this. She goes, what does it sound like? And I go, it goes, ee. and I go, and every now and then it comes. And every time, it, sometimes it goes away. But like, if I move my head, I can hear the electricity moving through the walls. She's like, you are so stupid. I'm like, well, we've established that over 15 years of marriage. You're probably not wrong. She goes, that's tinnitus. And I go, how? Do you, that's not tinnitus. Tinnitus is ringing like a phone. She goes, you think you're supposed to hear a phone ring? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Nobody told me what tinnitus was. And I was on artillery, you know, like major concussions. Um, yeah. So what did I know about PTSD? Even though I had, I had taught classes on, it, you know, I didn't, I didn't know shit. And, um, we had, a, I had a re what I came to a point where um, I was taking riskier behavior. I was doing things I shouldn't be doing. Um, I was uh, in my family life. My marriage specifically was taking a toll. Um, but I was in a very dark place. Um, all brought on to varying degree, basically. Yeah, my fault. Um, and uh, but it was a straw that broke the camel's back as far as the floodgates of emotions. Right. It wasn't that it wasn't like I had some major offense or anything like that. It's just. The coping mechanism that I developed in combat from the earliest days of when we were shipping off to Ramadi um, was shutting down. Right. Being numb. Uh, there's a great. um thing in uh gates of fire or gates is it gates of fire press field about the spartans yeah i believe so so he talks about 
um, three things you think about before um, uh, you go to battle, you go to war. And I had, I had the chance to have a conversation with Neil Armstrong before he passed. And I, I mentioned this, you know, you think about the three things you think about in order. You think about the mission. Uh, you think about um, the men. And then finally, you think about, uh, you know, your family. And I would catch myself doing that. I would I, every time I'd go out on mission, um, I'd tell my wife, I'm like, oh, I got I got uh, radio watch tonight. So I can't call you because we had Skype at that point. So I was like, I can't call you tonight. Uh, I got radio watch and it's in a, it's in the classified portion of the compound. So I can't, I got to sleep there and listen to radio. Can't talk to you. Afterwards, I told her, I was like, yeah, I had that. I had that radio watch like once every three weeks. And she's like, but you had it a lot. And I'm like, that's, those are the nights I was going out. And she's like, well, I appreciate you lying to me, but don't ever do it again. Um, but, um, so my coping mechanism was to just shut off. So I, I would think even before the battle, we'd go out on mission. Uh, we always worked at night. Um, and, uh, but I would leave a little note on my, on my little night's bedside stand in case I wasn't coming back. So I would have like a little to-do list. So I would say, you know, like I would have a list of like, Hey, I, um, you know, I, I bought my wife this jewelry or I was designing a, a, a necklace for her and it's got this much down payment. And you, this is the guy, here's the receipt, go pick this up and make sure you, she gets it, blah, blah, blah. And, and like a whole to-do list in case, cause I couldn't, I'm like, if I'm gone, somebody has got to pick up the pieces and know where I'm at on different status of projects. And I would keep that list updated on my nightstand. Cause I was thinking, you know, one it's are the trucks ready? Is my, is my gun lubed? Is, are my sites, you know, everything's going through this mental checklist and you keep going through the checklist over and over again uh, for the mission. And then are my guys ready? Are they, are they rested? Are they fed? Did, you know, and doing what we call leader checks, uh, troop leading procedures, uh, PCCs, PCIs, um, just going through all this litany of checklists to make sure you and your men are ready for the mission. And then finally, right as I'm walking out the door, I would think about my wife um, and, you know, what, what is she going to do when she hears the news that I'm not coming home? You know, and that would be the part that I'm like, I'm not hanging out here in this third phase, shut that shit off. Cause I'm usually it would be right as I'm walking out of my room and I'm headed to the trucks, you know? And so I'm like very spent little time. So I would shut that part off. Um, so it would always enter my mind, like Pressfield said in his book, but um, that was the one that I shut down real quick. Cause it's just, you can't linger there. Um, you're going to do things and that part doesn't help. Um, so I mentioned it to um, Neil Armstrong and I was like, this, this is what Pressfield says. And I found myself catching myself doing the same thing. Was it the same thing for you the first time? He goes, bro, he goes, just like you have those checklists. He goes, we had so many checklists. Um, he didn't call me bro, um, but <laughs> um, it'd been cooler if he did. I would have uh, long blonde hair, giving you a shaka. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he goes, we had so many checklists. And he goes, to this day, I'm pretty sure not all those checklists needed to be checked he goes i think they were just giving us random stuff to check to keep our minds on the fact that we nobody's ever done this before and you know so he goes he goes i was probably 20 miles up in the air before i realized we'd taken off because we we're going through all these checklists and i'm like it's amazing the role of psychology and the power of the mind to compartmentalize is 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 amazing so while i was talking i was talking to my buddy 
former SEAL Team 6 guy. And um, he started this charity. Um, and it's a, and he's like, hey, you really should go. And I was watching him, his own struggles with PTSD, his struggles with his son in anger management, struggles in his own marriage. And I'm like, I don't have all that. Like, maybe you need therapy, but I don't. Like, I got my shit under control, right? Again, PTSD is all about control and exerting control at any cost. And, um, and I, and I, and especially whether it's in any alpha male roles, whether it's firefighting or law enforcement, or especially special operations where you're, you're, you know, you go through all these levels of selection and trying out to prove that you're better than everybody else and you deserve to be there. There's no room for weakness. There's no room for admitting that you don't know what the fuck's going on. You know, there's a lot of this imposter syndrome. And I was mentioning that the other day I went, so fast forward and, um, I went to, I finally called up my buddy and I said, Hey man, I'm ready. He'd been trying to get me to go for years. He goes, whenever you're ready, you let me know. And, um, he'd call me maybe every six months to a year and be like, how are you doing? And I'm like, Oh, and I'd lie my ass up. I'm doing great, bro. Fucking couldn't be better. Living my dream. And, um, he's like, when you're, he wouldn't take the bait. He's like, when you're ready, you let me know. So, um, I finally, I was in a, in a, in a dark place and I just, I, I sent him a message and I just said, I'm ready. And he called me within minutes and he's just like, he's like, go to this website, sign up, drop my name. He's like, we'll get you as soon as you're ready to go. And I was like, I'm ready right now, man. I need, I, I don't know what else there is for me to do, but I got to try something different. Whatever I'm doing isn't working. I can't continue this way. And what my coping mechanism was, was just to be numb. I just kept shutting off that third phase of thinking about family. But it'd been 10 years since I'd been in combat. Once the coping mechanism was turned on, I didn't ever take the time or think I need to turn it off. Because we talk, a lot of people talk about a new normal. So being emotionally detached, being emotionally unavailable, um, Part of it is psychological. Part of it is as people are learning more and more about TBI and the role of CTE and minor concussions or minor blast injuries, you know, whether that's, I mean, I was talking to, I mean, I wish I remember the guy's name. He did a study on, uh, there's a, he did a, a peer reviewed paper called operator syndrome, which is a great, because it talks about all the physical ramifications of blast from micro blast, like a rifle all the way up to getting hit with a suicide bomb, right? Uh, V-bid, um, getting dropped on your head. We see it when you saw a great movie with Will Smith, Concussion. We, you know, major, everybody, when they get hit and they get knocked out, everybody knows, oh, I'll give that guy. It's the little ones that add up over time, over decades in the military, in the law enforcement and fire, just in the stress alone. And that's a compounding factor is just constant stress. Um, and I was just learning more about this just a couple of weeks ago at a marriage retreat. I've never been to a marriage retreat either. Um, but post this experience, um, I was definitely open to it. And I was like, hey, babe, we should go to this thing. She's like, really? You, a marriage retreat? And I'm like, yep, let's do this. And so it was very much night and day for me when I came home. So I went. So let me go into that. Um, I call up my buddy. I said, hey, I'm ready. He's like, let's get you going. And um, because you got to start with counseling. And I'm like, okay. He's like, we have counselors. We got to get your mind right. 
and figure out where you're at in your psyche. And we're going to get you in the right place for this experience. So do you want me to say the names or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, Is it Marcus um, Capone? Is that who you're talking about? Yeah. 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 He's yeah, been yeah, on the yeah, show. Yeah. I, okay. Okay. Good. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know what people are available to know. So Marcus, I've known him for five years now in, um, I made a, I shouldn't be weird. I put, I posted a LinkedIn about this, but he, and I, and I told him this, I said, you know, you, I posted this about it around veterans day. I said, uh, cause I came on right before veterans day from my experience. And I said, I just wanted to thank uh, him and my wife foremost, because they saw the pain in me that I couldn't see in myself. Um, and the need for healing, uh, when I couldn't, didn't see it, couldn't admit it. Um, and the tenacity, in the, in the fortitude that they both exhibited just to stick with it. You know, they saw value in me that I didn't see in myself, the redeeming value, um, which is a fucking testament to her and him. Um, so call him up. He said, all right, let's get you going. So I talked to, you have, you go through the program and I don't want to rehash everything since you've had him on the show. Um, but you start out with counseling sessions, you know, two or two or three before you go to make sure your, your mind is right. Like, why are you going? So I went down and the protocol is Ibogaine, which is, uh, which is the, the practitioner that I used started out doing Ibogaine treatments up in Canada to help heroin addicts kick it in a single session. And there, this, this organization is also working with Stanford medical, Ohio state, I believe, uh, and they're, they're mapping out CTE and TBI and the effects of different cortexes and nodes or whatever. Again, I'm, I'm messing that up cause I'm not that smart. Um, about where they're seeing damage and then they're going down, they're doing a single treatment of Ibogaine and they're coming back and like, it's, it's such a powerful neural regenerator that they're not even seeing scar tissue. Like after seven days after treatment, which is, is I'm like, okay, so you're saying that there's TBI, CTE, uh, blast injuries. I don't, might not have PTSD in the sense of like, Oh, woe is me, a victim, but I might actually have some physical damage to my brain. And that's what's causing my emotional outbursts and my anger management issues, my low testosterone. It's physical. It's not emotional. And that was easier pill for me to swallow than saying I'm a victim. You know, I, that's one that was a bridge too far for me was feeling sorry for myself, but I all, I know all about rehab, you know, especially after getting into jujitsu. I mean, I, I was injury free my entire life through 16 years in the military until I got to jujitsu. And then I got some 120 pound geek that plays Dungeon and Dragon fucking wrecking my house. <laughs> and I come back and my face is swollen. I joined you, you know, this I joined jujitsu because my wife told me to. Seems to my be a common daughter, theme here, by the way. Yeah, my, my, <laughs> yeah, dude, she's so smart. She's so smart academically. She's got it, you know, an MBA, speaks three languages, like just so far superior intelligence wise to me. But her insight into the human condition and how to speak truth to me is 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 what saved my life so many times um she can't you got to edit that part out she can't hear that i'm just joking <laughs> she's gonna get a big head now um she'd be like i know i've been trying to tell you idiot um if you just listen to me sooner so she said i was in a i was working in an energy company um and uh it was a dead-end job the the guy didn't want the boss didn't want me there um it just it i was going nowhere and i was just driving, sitting in traffic every day for an hour just to go to a dead end job that nobody wanted me there. I didn't want to be there. And so I'm just, and it's just draining me. And she goes, uh, 
And she's just like, listen, if nothing changes, like, I don't know how this marriage continues. I'm like, what? She's like, your job. It's destroying our marriage. I'm like, yeah, but you know, it's a good job. It's rest, steady paychecks, steady pay raises. Like, isn't this what you're supposed to do as an adult? Like this is adulting 101, right? Look responsible. And she goes, this ain't, this ain't you. You're dying on the inside. She goes, she goes, this was her quote. She goes, I'm not saying something inside you died, but something inside you is not living. She's like, I don't know what it's going to take, but you probably need to get punched in the face to wake the fuck up. And she's like, maybe you go to that. There's a gym, jujitsu gym, which is a world-class place. Uh, it's a tiny hole in the wall in a strip mall, but they got world-class instructors. Um, and uh, I mean, it's within walking distance. She goes, why don't you go there? Your daughter goes to anti-bully class there. She's five years old. She's learning how to fight. Like you think you're a big, tough man. I'm telling you, you're a shell of your former self. And I'm married an alpha and you're just dressing up like an alpha, but you're not anymore. You're, you're dead on the inside and I'm not living, I'm not going to stay married to a non-alpha. And I was like, Damn, fucking, anything else you want to add to that? Right. <laughs> While I cry exactly. in the corner. Like, Man, she's fucking, <laughs> I mean, guns are blazing. She just took, not stabbing, she'll never stab something back. She'll fucking do it to their, I've seen her, we've worked together in finance for you. She, I've seen her make executives cry. Just very, just like speaking the truth. Because a lot of people don't, aren't ready for the truth. And she sees it in people. And she, she told me exactly what I didn't want to hear. And I was like, I, again, I was like, I don't know. Maybe getting punched in the face is what I need. Now I get to jujitsu. Like, yeah, no, we don't punch here. And I'm like, all right. But after my first class, I was like, why is my face swelled up? Like, I don't know what's going on. And um, so I've been doing that for uh, three plus years now. And uh, first time I ever got like choked out hard, I was 40, 40 years old, 41 years old. I'm putting, I'm, I'm lifting my whole life. I'm probably, you know, right around 10, 12% body fat, 185 pounds, six foot tall. It's like strapping young cat, you know? And um, as I, if I don't mind saying so myself in this 15 year old female that weighs 110 pounds, green belt, not even old enough to be a blue belt. Fucking, I'm like, I'm going to smash this chick because my ego came out. I'm like, I'm going to pass her guard. No problem. She fucking baited me with a baseball choke and I'm, I'm out. And like, and what the worst part is, is she did it the exact same thing to a guy right, right before me. And I was like, I want to see that. And uh, again, I was like, I'm going to pass. I'm going to show this guy. I know what's up. Like he sucks (laughs) and I'm going to pass her guard. And she baits me and I'm out. And she, the coach is like, you got to stop knocking out these dudes. Like, these are like grown ass men. Like they're not going to keep showing up and paying their monthly fees. If you keep knocking all these kids, (laughs) guys out. Right. She's a champ. She's a, she's a fucking champ and she's a killer and she's gotten stronger. She's gotten really good at pressure. And I'm like, man, you put on some weight. Like you're like 120, 125. She's like, nope, still 110. Like you feel so heavy. Like you're so smart. Why can't I do that? I'm like to it. 185. I still can't do that. Um, I'm, so dumb when it comes to jujitsu. I love it though. It makes you feel so humble. It makes you feel stupid. As the more you know, the more you realize I am so bad at this. I have them I don't know the same. You, like I, I look. I don't at know them if you ever get good. No, no. It's design. They, they show you the move, and then I literally am like an ape scratching my head. Like you know, I know you showed us four a sequence of four moves. You lost me yeah. at like one and a half. Can we go over? And it for I've the just fifth pretended time? like I'm paying attention, <laughs> but I. You lost me. And then you look at your partner who's also looking, and you're like, I don't know, bro. I, I stopped paying attention minutes ago. 
and I know it's never going to change because I was trading with the guy who at one point was, I think he was ranked number eight in the world. And he's one of the coaches at our sister gym. And I'm training with him at what we call pro training in the morning. And uh, I'm just there to get beat up. Like they're all, these guys were all light featherweights. You know, they, they cut weight down to like 120, 130, 140. And they just like, they invite all the big dudes that are just dumb white belt, blue belts, just strong, just as they're like, if we can throw these guys around, no problem. And, uh, and there's some big cats in there, like, you know, single digit body fat, like blue belts that are like 240, you know, like, I mean, arms and legs bigger than my face. And these guys are cutting weight, dehydrated at 130, flipping them up in there. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, we're just training dummies for you guys. And they're like, yeah. And so when he is this, you know, black belt is completely lost and he, and everybody's like, I'm like, okay, so no. Yeah. Even at black belt, you just, you just tune out. I don't know why that is. Like I'm there to learn and I can't stay focused. I don't know what it is about getting smashed in the face. Um, yeah. So anyways, that was a, that was a long thing. So anyways, back to, um, Marcus. So I went down, um, and I was working through, uh, why I wanted, and you know, the counselors are like, what are you trying to accomplish? And I said, listen, I go, all I want to know is that the, the fog that I'm in, like, I, I realize I'm just living in a fog of gray. I don't see colors anymore. Hypothetic, you know, uh, theoretically, I don't see colors anymore in my life. I just want to know, or metaphorically, I just want to know that the, if this medicine can part the clouds just for a moment and I can see blue light, blue skies. And then the clouds come cascading back in on my life, back to my new normal. I go, just seeing a blue sky, metaphorically speaking, was enough hope for me to go on and I won't end it. Because I was, I mean, I was thinking about ending it for so long. And I mean, I, there was multiple times where I kissed my kids goodbye and nobody knew. Nobody knew. I didn't, I mean, I told one friend. And, um, he took, he's like, Hey, I need to take your guns away from you. I'm like, I know you're right. I know you're right. And a week later, I'm like, I'm good, bro. I'm good, bro. He's like, okay, you can have them back. Um, you know, but I was, I just, you know, it just being in a perpetual dark place and being like, if I can't, if I don't have hope, then what's the point? You know, nothing wrong with me physically. I got a great family, an amazing wife. I've given her tons of credit. Um, I have amazing, beautiful, smart kids, creative hilarious. And yet, even with all that, I was like, what's the point? Because inside I was dead. I was just dark. Um, and so what's, there's no, you know, quantity or quality. And there was no quality despite everything around me and the appearances. I got really good at keeping up appearances. My wife started calling me out the last couple of months. That's when I knew I needed to get help. Uh, she, she, we'd be at dinner parties. And she'd look at me and I'm laughing and she goes, she'd pull me aside. She goes, you're faking it. She's like, they don't know. They think you're having a good time and you're laughing at the right moments because you know, you're supposed to laugh, you know, but I can see that's not a real laugh. You're fake laughing. And I'm like, oh shit, I am. I'm, I'm not living. I'm, I'm alive, but I'm not living. I'm faking everything. Even down to my good moments, I'm faking that I'm having a good time. So that's when I, that's when I was like, okay, Marcus, I'm ready. I need something, anything. Being in the military, I joined the army when I was 17. So, you know, I raised, raised in the eighties with, you know, drug abuse, resistance, education, the dare programs, just say no to drugs, Nancy Reagan, 
you know, the war on drugs. And so when they're like, hey, you're going to go down to Mexico and you're going to do Ibogaine, which is the world's power, most powerful psychedelic. And I'm like, that sounds like a drug. And they're like, it's a medicine. And I'm like, sounds a lot like a drug. And I don't do drugs. Um, I don't even like to drink. Um, and I, so if I don't like to have a couple beers and lose control, what are the chances I'm going to go down and do Ibogaine and be out of, out of my mind for 16 plus hours, you know? And so I started talking to some of my other army buddies and some of the guys that do psychedelics and, uh, and mushrooms and different things. And uh, they're like, you're going to do what? And I'm like, I'm going to go do Ibogaine on this retreat down in uh, for veterans, special operations guys and civilians, you know, like, but they put all the soft guys together and, uh, but you can go as a civilian too. We sent firefighters down there and, um, did, all kinds of people can go. Um, and they're like, but you've done mushrooms, right? I'm like, nope. And they're like, have you done ketamine? I'm like, nope. And they're like, even with a hospital, like, I'm like, nope. Like, bro, you're going to die. And I'm like, <laughs> don't be, don't be over the top. They're like, you come over to my house. This is one guy. He's like, he's like, come over to my house on a series of weekends. You got a month. We're going to, we're going to, I'm going to dose you up and we're going to build up your tolerance to psychedelics. And you're going to go in there and it'll be a lot easier. So I call Marcus. I'm freaking out. I'm like, Hey bro. Cause bird did his, he's like, yeah, one of the guys that went with me, he was under the influence for like 36 hours. Cause he was fighting Ibogaine. He couldn't let go. You got to let go. You got to let the experience take over and you have to learn because nothing's happening to you in Ibogaine. You're experiencing things and you're, you're, my wife, she, she calls and she's like, don't say you're talking to the medicine, say you're remote. The, the medicine helps you remove filters on your life. And you're, so you can have a conversation with yourself, which I think is very true. Uh, and I, we can go into my vision of what I saw. Um, yeah. So Mark's like, you don't, you can be a complete quote unquote drug psychedelic virgin. You'll be fine. I'm like, okay, good. Cause I don't like drugs. So I'm just going to go into this cold Turkey. I asked all kinds of rational questions like, why this? What is this? What is the neural connector? How is this? And the, the counselors are like, look, I'm trying to answer your questions. And none of that matters. I'm like, yeah, I think it does. Like, what do you mean neural regeneration? I'm kind of like, are you a biochemist? I'm like, no. And they're like, does it really matter the answer to this question? I'm like, no, but I like I anything academic thing. And we've established this conversation. I'm not an academic. So it's like, I'm last grasp of straw of like, I'm going to use, find an academic reason of why not to go. I'm at the airport and be like, maybe I should just turn my car around. Like, I don't know if this is for me. And I'm like, what kind of bitch ass response would that be? I've faced so much shit in my life and I'm going to walk away from a healing. Like, and people, again, whether it was Roby or Marcus, people have like gone out of their way to help me. And I'm going to look a gift horse in the mouth. So I get on the plane, I show up and I get there and there's three other guys. Uh, one guy from uh, Marsoc, very senior leader uh, from Marsoc. Um, and he and I hit it off right off, right off the bat. Um, and then there was a, it was a, an army guy who was, who just left rehab. So you have to, when you go down to Ibig and you had it, you gotta be completely sober, no drugs for 30 days, no alcohol for seven days. And he's like, I, he checked himself into rehab. He's like, this is my last ditch effort as well, but I can't stay sober for seven days. So he checked himself into a rehab. 
And uh, he he's checking himself out. And the, the director of the program is like, well, you can't just check yourself out. You've been here for seven days. Like you're an alcoholic. Like he's like, no, no, no. I need to get out of here because I got a flight tomorrow. I'm going down to Mexico to do drugs. <laughs> and the guy's <laughs> like, you can't say that. Like you can't, you can't like, and he's like, what are you doing? He's like, wait a second. Are you, he's like, I'm going to go do Ibogaine. He's like, wait, do you know Marcus? He goes, yeah, that's where I'm going. He goes, oh, Marcus and I served together. Like I've been there. He's like, okay, listen. You can leave, but you can't tell people like you're going. No, you just can't. It's because there's just drug binge in Mexico. (laughs) You're just so much stigma because, and I, and I know if you listen to Rogan and you listen to some other cats, uh, Sean Ryan did a great podcast uh, with the practitioner, Trevor Miller, episode 30 on the Sean Ryan show. If you haven't, if anyways, to plug that Um, because in episode 24 is his psychedelic trip, which is way more detailed and more eloquent than a professional speaker versus me, like a Neanderthal. Um, and so, you know, people were coming from all different. And the, the fourth guy was an associate pastor. He used to be an inf- Marine infantryman and now he's a pastor. And he was the darkest of us. He didn't even want to look at us. He had, he literally had like dark skin. Like he's a, he's a Hispanic guy, I think. I don't know. I didn't ask, but he is a darker complexion, but he, it like, you just could see. And this is like the first time I realized, yeah, with all the hippie shit that people talk about, Oh, your aura. I'm like, this dude's got a dark aura. I'm like, you're a pastor. I'm like, bro, you look evil. And, um, he's like, I, I can't say the power of Christ compels myself, you know, like, um, he wanted nothing to do with us. We're all hitting it off. We're telling jokes, you know, and he's got, he's off by himself. He wants nothing to do with us. And um, so we go down uh, and such an amazing experience. I mean, it's a five-star experience in the treatment and the love and the compassion from the moment you get out of the car. I was, it made me uncomfortable. I'm, I don't like going to veteran things. I don't participate in, veterans of legion or veterans of form i i don't i'm life members in all of it because i'm like let me pay my money and stop emailing you know like i just i don't like doing the things where people are going to say thank you it's just very uncomfortable for me but you know down in mexico nobody they don't know any no shit about the global war on terrorism they're like you're just another dude who needs help and we're here to help you and that love came across in everything that everyone did there. It was just, I've never been in a, in a place of love, a house of love like that. I don't live in a house of love. How could we live in, how could I live in a house of love when I didn't know what love was? I had no emotional capacity to have love. I knew when I, I would pretend to have love. I knew to be, pretend to be a good father and a compassionate father and a loving, attentive husband. But just like my wife would call me out, on the laughter. She's like, she knew when I was faking love and I was faking intimacy and I was faking attentiveness. It just, that's just, that was me. She tolerated it on, you know, um, because she saw just like Marcus and so many other people, Roby, they saw something in me and potentially in me that I couldn't see in myself, a redeeming quality. And I think a lot of people that end up taking their lives, just they've lost themselves. And they don't see any redeeming quality in themselves, despite everyone around them loving them. But they can't, they can't receive it. There's a, 
there was a point in my vision which it all came it all made sense to me so uh, i'll get to that so that was a monday i showed up uh we go to this um Te- Tez Macau or whatever. It's a huge pizza oven and you get into it, sweat lodge. And we get in and it fucking hot is an understatement. It was burning my skin. And uh, the lady, I don't know what you, her title would be, but she sat right next to the fire. Like never, she's like every 15 minutes, you can get out and take a breather, come douse in water. She never left the thing for an hour. I'm like monster. And I'm like, so the guy, she only spoke Spanish. So they had an old guy uh, come in to be our interpreter. And I was like, how often? Because he's old. He looks like he's in his 70s. It's like, how often do you do this? He goes a couple times a week. And I'm like, bro, that's amazing. Because it gets up to like 180. The most I'd been was 165. This is this is pushing it. And uh, you can feel yourself starting to cook. Did and she this ask dude, you why you had a French accent when you spoke Spanish to her? <laughs> <laughs> That's that's called recall. And I love it. <laughs> that's like the highest form of humor to me. That's awesome. <laughs> and uh, I love that, bro. Thank you. And uh, he he falls over within the first 30 seconds and is crawling out, throwing up. And I'm like, oh, this is bad. And we're going through this thing. And, you know, the guy, the pastor starts crying about an hour, 45 minutes into it. And I'm like, what are you, what are you crying for, bro? I'm trying to breathe. And he's having this, he's having this breakthrough in this pizza oven. And I'm like, I must be doing something wrong. I came down here to heal. This guy is clearly having a breakthrough and I'm, I'm still, I'm still stuck. This is bullshit. This ain't working. What's your voodoo? And I get out and I'm like, the medicine that you're putting on the, the water, what, what, what do you call that medicine? And she goes, lion's mane. And then I'm like, and I'm still, again, trying to get like the recipe. Like, why am I missing something? What, what do I not know? And uh, so we then Tuesday, we have our last meal on for breakfast, and then we fast the rest of the day because um, ibogaine can make you nauseous um, and cause you can throw up or purge. Uh, jokes on them, uh, I have GERT and chronic acid reflux, so I'm going to throw up no matter what's in or not <laughs> in my stomach. Um, so we take the ibogaine, and they do it based off your body weight. And, and we are doing 13 milligrams per kilo, which is – so for context, this ibogaine started out when they found this and they started using it to cure addiction. And you can, you can, in a single session, kick heroin with no, which is amazing about that is it's a single day because cold turkey is three days, but a single session, one night, you can lose heroin addiction and no, no, uh, what do you call that? Um, jitters. What is that? Um, um withdrawals, withdrawal symptoms, mm-hmm. none. It's insane. Why? How is that possible? Um, and so the 13 to 18 milligrams depends on how much heroin, how big of an addict you are. So for, for PTSD and TBI, uh, they start you off at the lowest level of heroin addiction dosage. And I'm like, Man, I didn't know I was that bad off. And they're like, you'll be all right. So we go in, um, we take our first pill. It's a series of four pills. You take your first pill at eight o'clock at night, and then you got about an hour before it kicks in even on an empty stomach. So we go up to the room and um, we start, uh, we sit in front of a mirror and uh, you're hooked up to an EKG EKG machine because they're monitoring your heart. So for, there was two medics in there at all times, the whole night um, to supervise. And they're, they're, what was really interesting was I was, I'm very fearful of letting go. Right. So I was just like, I'm thinking, 
you know, I've had friends that done a lot of psychedelics and they're like, oh, you're just, you're, you're gone. You're in another place. But Ibogaine's different. Like you're very aware. You don't go to sleep. You're very aware. And they're saying, listen, this isn't about an experience about confronting things and the medicine will talk to you. Um, that's why you have to have a right mindset. So when things are getting crazy, you can still center yourself on why am I here? I'm here on a healing journey. I'm here and you can you can ground yourself in the fact that you're 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 working on yourself and it's not it's by no means recreational. Fuck that. People are like, it stays in your system for about two and a half months, which really just gives you a pause. And I'm in the middle of that right now to do the work, the introspective to make course corrections in your life. Um, and so one of my friends I was talking to the other night and they're like, oh, so you got to do this every two and a half months. I'm like, fuck that noise. I'd never want to do this the rest of my life, but I want all my friends to try it. Um, which is, you know, it was, it was, which, so understanding that I was there to heal. And again, I was there, this is a last ditch effort. And I'm like, I just want to see something. I want to see a, the blue sky to know that there's life out there. First hour. I was, so we're, I'm looking in this mirror and the, I'll try to paint a picture of what I saw. If that's all right. Uh, and I'll try not to take an hour to do it. Um, the mirror, I'm looking at the mirror and they're playing this crazy African uh, weedy music in the background, which is just absolute garbage. It's like, think London's the stomp crew, but like not in rhythm, but it's, <laughs> it, it sounds like stomp as if nobody was working together and they're just trying to guess what the other person is playing. It's horrible. I was like, can we get some like Oakenfold, some trance or something like some like house music, like some like deep bass kind of like really get me into a rhythm. Like this would be good. And they're like, no, no, this is, this is the music the medicine needs. And I'm like, again, I don't, I don't know what that means. I, that doesn't, that's such a foreign concept to me. And they're like, it'll make sense later. It still doesn't make sense, but I accept it. I think, I think the music told me that once Port is head just to let you know. Exactly. Yes. I love it. That's my, that's my calm down music that and sneaker pimps. Um, sneaker pimps got me through college coming down. And, um, so, uh, the, the mirror I'm sitting in front of a mirror and the mirror goes black. Now it's a dark room, but there's like candle lights, there's low light, but the mirror goes black except for my face. And my face is like gold. Um, and, you know, my counselor afterwards, she's like, what's the significance of gold and some other colors that I saw? And I was like, fuck, if I know, bro, like, I don't, you know, I'm just ex letting go. I'm just experienced. I'm not going to fight the medicine. I'm not going to try to control the vision and my face. I just see chunks of gold coming off of my face, like masks coming off. And I didn't know what it, and I wasn't trying to like psychoanalyze things. I, I wrote it all down later. And then I, I spent a long time reflecting and meditating on what each phase of the vision means um and it, it 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 was once i reflect i'm like oh that makes sense i don't even know how to laugh i gotta take all these masks off of my face so the medicine can get to the real thing and i'm like in that moment i'm like oh shit this is legit like it's demasking me like within the first couple of minutes so what you wear a mat you wear an eye mask and that kind of well, as soon as i put that what's great about the eye mask is if there's something you're experiencing in the vision it's not like shrooms or anything like that like where you're on for the ride and you can have a good ride a bad ride but you're on the ride with ibogaine you put the mask on to like as a sensory deprivation but if you're seeing something that you don't want to experience anymore because you're awake and fully aware you just take the eye mask off and it's over right you still have it in your system and but you can either do that and end the experience or 
you can, as they're saying, talk to the medicine, which is going to sound like mumbo jumbo. It definitely sounded like mumbo jumbo to me before the experience of saying, Hey, what are you trying to teach me right now about myself? And can I learn this lesson another way? Cause this is too intense. So I laid down and I was, this is my first kind of like, this is my first psycho, uh, experience, psychedelic experience. And I haven't probably hallucinated since I was a little kid when I had like a super high fever, like 104 something. And I, the room was coming in on me and I was like, this is so cool. The room is collapsing. And I'm like having a great time tripping balls to a fever at eight years old, but I haven't had anything since then. So, and as an artist, I like, I was like, my biggest fear was I was going to go in, and not be inspired to do more art. Right. And so I was like, I want to see, I'm going to, and so like, I'm going to memorize everything that I see and then I can paint it when I get done. And so I start trying to control the room and I close my eyes and I'm trying to control the vision. And then it just starts, I start cascading myself into a downward spiral because I'm trying to control it, you know? And then after like an hour of that, I was just like, okay, I give up. I can't control this anymore. And so I was like literally talking to the medicine. I'm like, I can't, if, if we continue down this path, I'm going to become a psychotic patient. Like it's driving me nuts. Like I'm going to become certified crazy. I was like, we got to stop this experience. And like that, the spinning stop, everything stopped. And I'm like, oh shit, you can talk to the medicine. Again, my wife's going to hear this portion. She's like, you sound cuckoo. Um, but yeah, so it's really cool because you're not, you're not on that quintessential trip. You're in control. And so then I was like, all right, so when you go into the experience, you write down questions that kind of help you stay on track. So what, what were some of my questions? I'll, I'll read you some of my questions because I'm all good about being transparent. Um, you know, one of the questions is, what do I desire within myself? What do I need? What do I want? What do I, what do I experience and what do I have? Um what character traits do I have that need to be evaluated, adjusted and have a healthy relationship with, you know, I'm extremely arrogant. Um, and so then I started crafting questions very deliberately to the medicine. So I was like, you know, um, show me how to live a life of joy. I was like, if I'm going to have an experience and I can kind of cater my experience through the, the, um, the medicine, then I want to have a really good trip. I want to have some good visions, you know? So I was like, help me have a life of joy. I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to outsmart this medicine. Um, show me who I was and how do I relate to the old me, the true me and the me that I am now. Um, show me how to exist and relate to the unknown and show me how to love my family better. In the dist, I would ask these questions to the medicine, and I really just kind of got stuck on the loved one because I realized it was void. I didn't have it. I didn't know how to love other people genuinely. I knew, you know, the hallmark version of what love's supposed to look like, very cut and dry, but I didn't. And what I realized later in the vision, probably hour 16, was that I didn't, I truly didn't love myself, which is hard for me to admit because I have such a ridiculous arrogance and ego. I'm the shit. I know I'm the shit. And yet I don't love myself. Um, I barely tolerate myself. Um, but everything on the outside is like, that guy's 
he's super confident. He's super alpha. He's super, he's borderline cocky, you know? And yet I can't stand myself. I couldn't, I don't see a, a one redeeming quality in myself. Despite all of my accomplishments, I just felt like a faker. You know, if people really knew what was going inside me, they'd kick me out of the unit. If people really knew what was going inside me, they'd never give me this job. You know, like that's how I was plagued with self-doubt and negative self-talk. And the whole experience, I'll fast forward through some some things that deal with God and heaven and hell and things like that. I I went to what I consider hell, um, which was just eight hours of nothingness. And maybe I will talk about. So what I realized, like, so I, I saw, I saw this, I spent eight hours in this black void and my mind is like, well, is this, what is this? What, why am I here? And why is it taking so long? It's like an eternity. And my mind just starts dwelling on all the bullshit in my life, the pain that I've caused myself and others. And I start this downward spiral again of psychosis where I'm torn. I start tormenting myself. And that's when I'm like, Oh my goodness, this is hell. I was raised in a Christian household, very evangelical. Uh, you know, my parents speak in tongues and they're very, you know, very right, not that political right wing stuff, but that moral majority that, you know, and, um, they view everything through the lens of the Bible. And I was raised that way, and I kind of stopped having anything to do with that when I came home early on in my time in Iraq. I was like, I just, I want to believe that stuff. It just doesn't make sense to me anymore. It doesn't have the impact that I wanted to. It never really did. But again, I was faking that. Like people would, you know, sing songs, and I'd be like, I'll sing songs too. I don't really know why. It doesn't really mean. And I worked for the church for a whole year too. You know, and I saw people crying and love and compassion and having these great redemptive stories and forgiveness of others and themselves. And I'm like, I grew up in the church and I've never experienced anything like that. And I can't relate to it at all, no matter how much I surround myself with it. And you're told you should have these experiences. And so people start, in my opinion, I like fake having these uh, religious experiences, but none of it was genuine. And, um, during my during my 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 session, I I realized that I'm like just a little drop, right? So if we're if we're made in the image of God, I'm a drop of water, and God is the ocean. And this might sound a little bit quacky, right? Um, but it makes sense to me. For me to for heaven is to be for that single drop of water to be reincorporated back into the ocean to go home. There's no beginning. There is no end. There's no alpha. It's the alpha and the mega, the beginning and end. There is none. It's, 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 it just is. It's, it's everywhere. It's at the same time. It's omnipotent. It's omnipresent. It's just everywhere. But hell is not the lake of fire. It's not demons prodding you with pitchforks. That's stimulus, right? It's cartoonish. It's, it's, but I felt myself in that void starting to go down that road where I became my own tormentor. Hell for me is that single drop of water, knowing you'll never be incorporated into the ocean. You're on your own forever. And you only left with your own pain and suffering. You become your own tormentor. And you 
and you can't ever, and I was even at, at about, you have a good sense of time. At least I had a good sense of time in the Ibogaine. And I was like, this is about eight hour mark. And I'm losing my fucking mind in a, in a, in, in nothingness. And I'm like, Oh, this, I got to get out of here. Like, this is hell. If I spent my entire eternity here, I would go crazy and there's no escape. That's hell for me. Cause there's nothing creative happening. It's just like my bad shit in my life. Um, so I, I come out of that. I went through some other scenes that, that don't add to the conversation, but they mean a lot to me. So I, I at some point I was just like, I got to get the fuck out of here. Like, so I raise up my hand and, I, and the, the, the practitioner comes over and he's, she's like, are you doing all right? And I'd thrown up about 25 times. They're like, bro, you're, you're, you're pushing a world record here. Like purging, like, what are you, what are you getting out of your system? Like there's a lot of, sh- and this is something I still don't understand. Truly the whole idea of purging and getting rid of things and letting go physical manifestations of things. I don't understand the science. I don't even know if it is science. I don't, but everybody that's had the experience, it makes sense to them. Um, he's like, bro, what? And they were, we have, I, you know, IV lock. So they're giving me anti-nausea medicine, multiple doses to like stop me. And they're like, you know, everybody purges once or twice, but bro, you are on a fucking rampage and there's nothing in your system. So whatever is coming out of you is disgusting. Um, and I was like, I, they're like, you got some shit. You're really letting go of some emotional stuff. I'm like, bro, I just got acid. Like I'm jokes on you. I, I would have done this anyways. If you, you know, a good workout session will make me do this. So I was like, I got to, I, I want to be done with this experience. Let me go. And I think if I go down to my bedroom and lay down, the experience is over because I'm out of the room. I'm over. So I go downstairs. They help me downstairs. You can't walk. You're so knobbly. And that's why there's no, there's no recreational use to this, whatever. Like you're just fucking smoke. Um, so I lay down in bed thinking the experience is over. I lay down in bed and the room, you know, my eyes go dark again and I realize, oh shit, I'm still in it. You know, even though I don't have the blindfold on me, I'm still in it. And um, the I'm back in the void. And I was like, no, fuck no. I don't want to be in the void again. Like this is hell. Like I, I got to get out of here. And I don't know how to escape the void. And because at that point I'd already realized the void is hell and I'm still in it. And in the tiny furthest distance, there's this tiny little gold image of myself when I'm like four or five years old, a little blonde headed kid that's, and it keeps moving a little bit closer to me. And as it gets closer, um, I see myself and then superimposed over it, it's my son. And in that moment, I realized I am my son. My son is me. And I just... And I realized the love that I wasn't showing him because I couldn't show it to myself. I didn't know what love was. And any generational curse or generational sin or anything that the issue of love, um, the one thing my dad tried to do was his, his, he told me his dad never told him that he loved him. He knew that he loved him, but he was never told that he was loved. And so he said, you know, one thing that as a father, he was going to try to do was tell us that he loved us more. Right. But there's a, there's this multi-generational thing that people are, they're doing the best that they can, you know? And so I don't, I don't, everybody's got faults. I'm not going to, I don't fault my parents. They did, they did the best that they could. And I, 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 I hope my kids don't fault me because I'm doing the best that I can. Um, 
but I realized I wasn't, I wasn't doing the best that I could. I knew I could be doing more because I wasn't giving my kids love. And um, I saw the generational cascading pain that I was passing on to my kids. And um, I'm solely to blame for that. And it just crushed me. And um, I finally had that break. I just started weeping and bawling in the midst of this vision. And, um, you know, the, I mean, some guys are crying during yoga and some guys are crying during the fucking Ted McCall. And I'm like, what am I missing? And again, my questions, the one that I focused on was love. Cause I was like, that's the hope. That's the blue light that I'm going to see. And when I saw, cause I have a different, my son, he's just turned six up until he was about five, maybe like three, four months ago. He hated me. He's like, I only want mama. You suck. I hate you. Get away from me. And so I, I don't have a relationship with my son. You know, I take him to, he does jujitsu now too. I hold him. I try to be, he's like, get off me. Don't touch me. Cause I never showed him love. And, uh, I didn't know how to, I was like, you gotta be tough. You gotta be a man. You're going to be a killer someday. And I'm like, what kind of father am I? I want my kid to be a killer. Do I want this for my son? Do I want him to walk the path that I live and I live? Do I want, I know the pain he's going to go through and I'm, I'm wishing this for my son. Insanity. And um, so I just, I was just breaking down. And once, once that happened, once I started, I, that realization came over me that I do have the capacity to love him. This orange and red glow, I'm laying in bed. This orange and red glow just starts emitting from my chest. You know, when, you know, the hippies talk about aura and I just, this, this, this warmth just, and I, I immediately recognize it as love. It's just pouring out of me. And I'm like, oh shit, I can love. And I just, this weight was just lifted off of me. And in that moment, it's like, I don't want to get like too religious, but like, this old, this blue entity and I there was no human form I mean there was like it was weird because it was multi-armed blue energy force um and and I couldn't I can't really describe it besides that but I immediately I knew I'm like this is God I'm looking at God you know everybody's got a different experience but hands down hand on the Bible take all my money if I'm wrong. I this I knew in in the deepest recesses of mine, I was face to face with God, whatever that is to people. Um and in that moment, I there was a couple of thoughts that came to me like not he was this energy wasn't speaking to me, but it was planting these ideas in my head, which is exactly what I needed here, which was You've, this is just a drop of the love that you have for your son, the capacity is just a taste of what I love you. Even though you don't love yourself. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to cry. Because um, it was such a profound moment that I, you know, because my ego, my arrogance, I thought I, I thought I was the shit. And I realized in that moment, I don't love myself, but God does.
and then I we oh man get your shit together uh, people are listening no um, people listening for your courage and vulnerability mate not not for some uh, facade so I'm thinking about all the shit that I've done wrong in my life And the pain that I cause other people. And God was saying, I forgave you before. Yes, he forgave me before I even asked. And it it rocked me because um, spending your whole life in you know, uh, church specifically, and I've been all over the world and, and Christians and churches. I've been to all kinds of different churches because I wanted to experience so many different things. Um, everybody has a different relationship of what right looks like as far as walking in faith or a relationship with God. Each, even different countries practice, you know, like if you go to a church in the south of the United States, it's very different than a church in Germany or Poland. And yet everybody's quote unquote Christian. So we 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 we, we approach it very differently. And um so but the whole concept, so the way I was raised is you have to admit that you're a sinner, you have to you know atone for your sins, and then God magically forgives you after you admit it. You know, there's the, you know, and in that moment, I realized what God was telling me was that's all fine and good and everything. He goes, but I forgave you before you even asked. And he goes, that's because otherwise it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, if then, then if it's, it's an, if then relationship, if you ask forgiveness, then I'll forgive you. But in that moment, he's like, my love is more than that. You don't need to ask for forgiveness. I forgave you already. It's such a profound thing that evoked such a strong emotional response from me because it 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 just realigned it it realigned what I, the message or the version of faith and a relationship with God that had been uh, indoctrinated within me um, growing up in a, you know United States Church Protestant Evangelical Church that grace and forgiveness is so much more profound than we can understand. And so despite growing up in church and despite being anti-medicine or anti-psychedelics, anti-drug, anything, I had the most profound religious experience that I've ever had in my life. And just understanding the concept of love is so... We, it seems so normal. It seems so like, oh, I've seen a, I've seen a rom-com. I've seen a, I've read a book. I've read Shakespeare. Like I, I know, I didn't know shit. I knew other people's interpretations of it, but never experienced it for myself. Um, and what, what an amazing experience to be able to feel. I wanted to see blue light and have hope. And I came away with so much more, um, and which was funny because they take your phones away from you. And um, so when I finally got my phone back, which was Thursday morning, 
um, I text my wife. It's like six six thirty in the morning my time, but she's two hours ahead of me. Um, so it's you know, it's four thirty my time, six thirty her time. Sorry, and she's just waking up, getting the kids ready for school, and I'm texting her like, "Life is amazing. The world is beautiful. Like, I love you so much. Like, I mean, I love you to the moon and back, and all this stuff." And she's like, "Listen, I know you've been tripping balls. Like, you're." high as fuck right now but i and i'm happy for you but it's 6 30 in the morning i haven't had any coffee yet and your positivity is fucking annoying <laughs> toxic so, positivity <laughs> yeah exactly so i was just like oh okay and um i came back and uh i she, i think she was very cautious uh she's like i was like listen i'm different i'm just straight up i'm gonna tell you i'm a different person and she's like we've been down this road before I'm optimistic, but you've let me down so many times. Fair point. Fair point. And you know, the the counselors, they talk to you about like, hey, you've changed, but nobody else has. You need to like just chill a little bit. Now, maybe not tell your neighbors and your friends right away what you did, you know? Take some time. And I and I agree. And it was like, let my actions speak louder than my words. And um, so it's been about a month now. And, you know, within a week. We had a, the very next week I came home and then the next weekend we had a bunch of friends come over. We're go old school, everybody dressed up in, you know, retro outfits and we're going to have a beer pong tournament because that's what people in their forties do. They try to relive their glory days. (laughs) We had, I I mean, I had a fucking blast, right? Um, I forgot how fun that is and how competitive people can get. Um, But the end of the night, you know, a bunch of my neighbors, they like to do karaoke and everything. And I've been in this neighborhood for five years and I'm like, come on, let's not, I'm not going to do that. And I sang my first karaoke song, right? In my life, my neighbors are looking at me and be like, what is going on here? And they're coming up to me at the end of that. And they're like, something's different about you. And I'm like, you think so? Like, I'm just having a good time. And they're like, no, no, you're having a, a different kind of good time. Like, you're happy. And I'm like, oh, I'm always, and they're like, no, no, no. And so, it, I mean, this is my first time in interacting with them. And since I came back and they're like, you've changed. And I think moments like that help um, because it was, and now it's been a couple of weeks and my wife made a comment to somebody then she goes, no, it's, it's very evident. He engages with the kids way differently. Like he's more attentive uh, to them and the relationship with him, with them is, is night and day. And um, and um, my relationship with her, from my perspective, is very different. But I think she's been hurt so much, and I've let her down so much that she's more hesitant to accept it. So the other day, she's getting ready uh, to go out with a bunch of ladies from the neighborhood for uh, ladies' night, and um, so she's getting ready. And I walk in the room. I'm like, "Hey, I love you. You're an amazing person." And she's just like, "Oh, thanks, babe." And I'm like, I walk in like 15 minutes later, and I go. You know, you're you're truly an amazing wife. It's like so powerful and strong. Like it's just a wow. And she's just like, shut the fuck up. And I'm like, <laughs> she's like, get out of here with that nonsense. And so I'm 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 sitting down on the couch, just you know, watching TV or whatever. And she walks out and she goes, you know, if you Google top reasons, top ways to know if your spouse is cheating on them the over knee jerk reaction, the guilt of over complimenting and ever. She goes, she goes, if I hadn't known 
that you had gone down to Mexico uh, with through Marcus's organization. She goes, I'd swear to God, you were cheating on me. She's like, because this is like your positivity and your love is just over the top. And I'm like, I just, I just, I have this idea and I can't, I can't not say it. I can't not tell you that I love you. I can't not, like, it hurts me. I, it would hurt me not to say it, you know? And um, she's like, okay. And I just inundating her with positivity and love is just, she's on much. I think she's still waiting for it to like wear off. She, as you know, the, the medicine stays in your brain for about two to two and a half months. She really just gives you a pause to do the work that you need to do to lock in the gains that you've made. I think if I was her, I'd be waiting for that two months to be over to see if I, the old me comes back. But um, I'm really focusing in on locking in the gains. So, yeah, that's uh, that was my experience. Uh, you have the option uh, with uh, this organization, and um, the guy's name is Trevor Miller. Uh, I don't remember the name of his company, but uh, he does a great podcast on Sean Ryan's show, episode 30. He has, has contact information. Anybody can reach out to him and go. Um, not just special operations guys, not just uh, soldiers, um, uh, but anybody can go. And um, it was just, it was just, I was so happy to have that experience and um, to come back and experience life the way that I wasn't, wasn't experiencing. I didn't know these emotions because I shut my coping mechanism was shut off emotions. So I'm 44, but I went to, I first time I went to combat was 2006. I haven't, I haven't had emotions in 50, was it 15 some years except anger because anything that I was feeling just translated into anger. So you've talked about um, showering your wife with love and obviously that transition period the the guilt that was eating you up about your inability to pass love on to your children you have this this kind of vision as you're using the plant medicine what has been the evolution of that relationship with your son after this uh this ibogaine treatment i think i think kids are it's amazing how resilient they are um i think it, i caught it at a perfect time right so He's just beginning out of his toddler stage. He's just getting out of the one mommy and nurturing. And he's just within the last couple of months discovered like, oh, there's this big kid here that lives in my house and he can catch a ball and he'd throw it back, back to me. And it seems like he wants to do that. And this is, you know, um, I've always been envious of people that had those relationships with their kids and I, I didn't have it at all. Um, and so for him to turn around and I think I just got, honestly, I, I, I'm, I'm, I probably, I don't want to like almost jinx it, but I think I got lucky at a good time where he's starting to be receptive, uh, to me, like, I guess sticking around, we went through the whole, I'm going to marry mama phase, not you. <laughs> I'm like, okay, guy. Um, it's not Georgia. Calm down. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> and, um, so me coming back now and um, it is just the perfect storm of which has a negative connotation, but it's the perfect opportunity for me to be open and attentive and loving and him ready to receive that love. Um, 
I think it might've been worse if I had done this two years ago and he still didn't want me no matter how much I, I think, because I was, you know, him yelling at me and saying, I hate you. And not even, under, he does, he's five years old. He doesn't know what that word means. And yet, I mean, it, my wife could see what it was doing to me. And she'd be like, you know, you don't really mean that you love daddy. And, and, and he'd be like, I don't. And I'm like, man, where does this anger come from? Why is he so mad at me and everything? that? And I don't want to like, you know, overly attribute the anger and the, the feelings that I had inside me that were being already transferred. It just, what it is what it was. And I'm just, I'm so happy uh, and grateful for the opportunity where now he's ready to receive it, but I'm also in a position where I can give it. And that's, I think that's the best thing for me in my life going forward. Well, you talked about multi-generational trauma. Um, the TBI element is obviously a, a very important part of the discussion, especially in you know special operations, special forces, breaches in the military, combat athletes, etc. But one of the other elephants in the room when it comes to mental health and the tactical professions is childhood trauma. And I truly believe that the multi-generational trauma that you talked about, that passing on from father to son or mother to daughter is another area that we're kind of two or three generations behind the ball. Um, you know, I, I, I would argue that you could go back all the way to World War II, at least if not prior to that, to see, you know, the, the nucleus of what we're seeing today. When you carried this angst, you know, and you said the projection of, of the ego, even though ultimately it was low self-esteem that we see so often, um, when you look back now with this fresh set of eyes, so many people's upbringing, the parents did the best with what they had. But now if you were to psychoanalyze your upbringing, were there any elements that you think contributed to that low self-esteem as you progressed into adulthood? That's a tough one. Um, that's tough because it's, it's when I look back on my own childhood, um, my parents were around my parents, you know, um, there were tough times to be sure, tough times financially, tough times in their marriage. I, you know, I, I remember my dad being depressed. I remember his struggles and watching it. And what's interesting, I think I was, I learned a lot about money at different stages of my life and being my dad being unemployed for five years uh, with a master's degree and, you know, all the, I mean, very academic, very cerebral individual. Um, and I was always amazed growing up where me, my two sisters, I have one older, one younger, we could go through that same five-year period. And the three of us all have very different relationships to money um, and work ethic and what it, what you're willing to. And then married up with my wife who grew up in communist Poland and uh, escaped uh, across the border before the wall came down. Um, and, you know, her relationship to money and standing in line for food um, in uh, the things that the opportunities we were able to take and associated risk to 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 chase that. It's just there's it's uh, interesting how you your childhood can create values uh, and formulate a path um, oftentimes because you don't you feel like going, you could potentially be going backwards and reliving the pain of your childhood. And for me, 
uh, one of the biggest cha- pains in my childhood was uh, the lack of money. Um, and so, um, yeah, I've definitely been accused of being frugal. Uh, it would be a nice way to say it. Um, but like now, um, I, the last five years we live, we live quite comfortably or well, on all appearances. We live quite comfortably. We have a nice house. We have nice cars. Um, but few people know I work three jobs, you know, and my wife and, and my wife works. Um, and like, there's never not a moment. There's almost not a single day of the week in the last five years. I wasn't working. In five years, there, there's no days off ever because I don't want my kids. So why why this ties into your, your question is um, both my wife and I decided, especially when we were living in Dubai, and I mean, financially, we're just fucking crushing it. Um, that's the opportunity it affords you um, if you stay disciplined. And we had a lot of Polish friends there, all, you know, Eastern Europeans all grew up under communism. And we quickly realized, you know, that people would, you know, buy their wife a brand new red convertible for their birthday. And I'm like, that, but wasn't the car you had good enough? Like what? And um, didn't make sense to us. And then we realized, oh, so people who didn't have money when they were growing up and now they have money, sometimes more than they should uh, or they ever thought possible. They, we found, we, we did anecdotal hypothesis that people go on one of two tracks. I'd never had it before. Now I want it all. Or or my wife and ours never again. We'll never go to bed hungry. Our kids will never know that pain, that sting um, of asking for food or receiving government handout. Like that will never happen. Um, And so we just, those kinds of pains, those kinds of traumas carry over. Um, so a long time ago, I could have been like, oh, I could be more available to my family, you know, on the weekends when the kids are on and I'm, I'm just, I'm grinding away at something, being an entrepreneur, a side hustle, a side gig, doing security work, uh, picking up freelance stuff here and there, uh, you know, selling paintings or something. It's just like, I'm always doing something. Even my hobbies, I've tried to monetize everything. Because it's just there's just no going backwards, um, and it could be that is probably the most. I almost wish there was like abuse or something to where I could be, be everybody could understand like oh that's why you are the way you are you were abused it's not your fault but mine was the pain of the lack of money and I've made so many decisions in my life to make sure I will, I, I will never feel that pain again and my kids will never feel that pain. Um, and the fact that my wife is right there with me, I mean, it's good that you're, you're on the same page, but it's, it's doubly effective. Um, I was, I was living in Dubai, um, I, when I first moved there and I was living with one of my buddies that had gone to West Point and Ranger school with, he was an executive for Exxon and he was traveling back and forth between Iraq, Basra and, um, Dubai where his family lives. So he was like, Hey, but until your family gets here, like crash in my house, you know, it's huge house. And, um, I'm like, yeah, great. And you know, I'm just sitting at the kitchen table one day after work. And he he comes in um and his daughter with his uh and his wife comes in bringing his kid from her daughter from school and she's in tears. The daughter's in tears, eight years old. And my buddy jumps in, he's like, What's wrong? And I'm like, Oh man, this is it's not my house, not my kids, kind of awkward. Like clearly you guys have an issue. And she's like, she looks at her dad, she's like, Why are we so poor? 
And I'm in this like house that's like 5,000 square feet. I mean, it's got maze big in my life. And his daughter's like, why are we so poor? And she's, he's like, what are you talking about? She goes, I've, I, I'm the only kid in my class that's never flown business. Right. And I was like, and that's when he pulls me aside and he goes, listen, you have to be very careful living in Dubai and things like that. But, but it, it ties to this of the things you're teaching your kid that you don't realize you're teaching them. You know, um, what are the second and third order consequences of living an affluent lifestyle? If you have it or trying to keep up with the Joneses, it teaches kids and kids are sponges. They pick up everything like, you know, like, like I picked up my dad's understanding of his depression and his, and his feel, fears of failure and things like that um, as a kid without actually understanding it. But you can pick up that vibe like a, you know, a good dog or a kid can just, they understand. Um, so what are we teaching our kids? And I know I was afraid that I was teaching my kids, even though they didn't understand it, anger and resentment and bitterness and being jaded. And I could see that in my son. Um, well beyond the years where he should have just been clinging to his, his mother. Um, so there's, that's a very roundabout way of, you know, correlating the, the struggles that I had in my childhood and understanding how you can pick up on pain points of your parents and how they can shape and mold your values and then how you can just continue that cycle. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be very cognizant of, you know, the things that I say, but more importantly, the way I carry myself around my kids now um, that I'm a little bit more enlightened on that. And I feel like I have a new opportunity uh, to change the trajectory of our relationships. And hopefully um, I'm sure they'll have their own pain and their own struggles, but God forbid they, they relive mine, you know? Well, it's an interesting perspective with you talking about with the the kind of uh, I mean poverty or perception of as you said living in an affluent neighborhood, but behind closed doors things aren't the way they were. I grew up on this beautiful farm, and the farmhouse was majestic. I mean, it goes back hundreds of years uh, in all the different stages of this house, and you know people thought we were very very wealthy. But my dad was a horse vet, so the farm was a working farm. Um, the house itself had never really had much done to it, so it was kind of run down inside. We were wearing secondhand clothes. Um, you know, we never went overseas. Um, not that a lot of people do, but you know, the the local vacation holiday was was the beach, kind of south yeah. of England. Not exactly known for its uh, you know gorgeous beaches. It was all shingle, but we loved all of it. That's the thing. There was no yeah. perceived misery. But when I look back. When you're thought of as a, as a tough, as a snob, as this kind of, you know, rich kid, but actually behind the scenes, it's not. I remember, you know, feeling that pull. And as you said, a, you know, a, an abuse is an easy black and white, clean way of saying, look, this is this is probably the nucleus of my mental health problems. But when it's yeah. more subtle than that, whether you were a middle child and for some reason you weren't loved as much as the other two or, you know, yeah. you struggled with with the, you know, the perception of wealth or poverty or whatever it is. These are all real things too. And there's guilt and shame attached to those as there is with, with many of the other traumas that people suffer. So it's interesting. I've had people, and I always use them as an example, Ishmael Bay, child soldier from Sierra Leone, parents murdered, forced to kill, 
that's a pretty obvious trauma. And he grew from that and it was amazing. But then there's lots of other people where the trauma was a lot less acute, but equally as impactful to them as they progressed through their careers. And many of them found themselves about to take their own lives. So I think that comparison of trauma is important. You can't downplay yours because you look across the aisle and someone looks like they've got it worse off. Your trauma is your trauma. And you and you have to understand that even if it seems diminished by other people's, you still have to address it. It's still going on inside your head. Yeah, I want to, I wish, um, so I was at this marriage retreat, right? And um, they handed out this article called uh, Operator Syndrome. And um, <clears throat> it was, um, I think it's Chris Fuhr is the is one of the authors. And we got to, um, I believe that's it. Uh, anyways, I'm sure folks can Google Operator Syndrome. But it talks about the, um, the cumulative effect, right? So when you have, a, you get knocked out, Coaches know, team sergeant knows, hey, that kid's got TBI, right? Concussion, that's legit. It's obvious. It's that obvious sign of trauma. It's that abuse. Where were they mapping out now? And you see, you saw this in the movie with concussion is those the, that cumulative effect of getting knocked, right? Whether it's the concussions, it's shooting, it's... Um, but it's 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 trauma in life as well. It's the cumulative effect of grinding it out every single day. And that's why I said in the beginning, I, I'd almost wish there was just one big horrific event where I could just be able to point to it and be like, that's what got me. But it's it's the it's the day in, day out cumulative effect of it's one more mission. It's one more deployment. It's it's one more saying goodbye to my kids. It's one more my daughter crying, why are you leaving? You know, why do you have to continue to do this? Why are you never home? Why, you know, and it's, um, it's that, that grind that just wears you down. It's like an erosion of self and it's an erosion of desire. It's an erosion of life um, until there's just nothing left for you to give. Because in my instance, I'm just grinding it out and always working. You know, I have my neighbors and I have a, I have a buddy, his, um, he's got 4,000 employees. Like he's crushes it financially. And he's like, he's like, you know, sometimes we'll be at a barbecue or something and somebody will be like, oh, so, you know, typical guy question. What, what's your name? You know, where are you from? And uh, what do you do? Because guys, we always measure each other for some reason, like by our status among the barbecue pack of what do you do? And then we assign some arbitrary status thing. And the one time the guy's like, he, he, he does everything. He's, he's got like 17 jobs. You know, people are looking at me like I'm crazy. Um, but I'm like, no, not really. And that, but my buddy's like, no, insisting. He's like, no, 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 really count them up. How many, how many, how many different ways are you getting paid right now? And I'm like six. And he's like, and everybody else is like looking at me like that, yeah. but it's the things that we do that slowly, I mean, at what point was it is enough enough for me? Yeah. Um, I, and my wife has that conversation. She's like, she goes, I know you're not greedy, but when will you feel safe? I don't know if I ever will. I, I, I'm, I, because when I look 
back, I'm, I, when I look in the mirror, I just see that little kid who's afraid of where the next meal or being taunted by the school children of why you get the free government foods and, you know, that kind of stuff. And it's like, I don't know if I'll ever break free from that. Um, cause it's defined and, but it's that, that, that cumulative effect of trauma. It's that slow erosion that drives people to a dark place where they realize nothing's ever going to get better. I'm always going to be stuck under this yoke that's slowly grinding me down. And it's not like there's this major quicksand that I'm getting sucked up in. It's more like a, you know, light mud and I'm, but I'm slowly losing traction and I'm slowly sinking under the weight of this thing that from any outside to be like, it's not that big of a deal. Fucking hustling. We got to, we, 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 we applaud the hustle. We applaud the grind, you know? Um, but it's man, that grind, it's the right word just wears you down and you think you're doing the right thing. You know, I got a brother-in-law who's a cop and, um, most cops I know, I, you know, when I moved here to the United States, I, I linked up with the local County Sheriff's department to help them, you know, increase their firearms proficiency and things like that. And, um, you know, sometimes I'd get like 18 guys out there. Sometimes I get two. And I'm like, where there's no consistency. I'm like, I'm donating my time. Like the fuck, like Artman's providing you bullets like for free. I'm providing my time and my coaching, you know, driving an hour each way. Like I, I'm like, I can't, I can't give this stuff away, this knowledge away, you know? And, um, and I, and I was talking to the, um, the dep, you know, the, I guess the deputy commander, I don't know. Some guy's got, it's my buddy. I'd have no idea about police rank he's got two stars on his collar i just call him general um but he's a nice guy but i i was just like where is everybody what like what is it me is am i not teaching the right stuff and he's like listen man we don't provide training on the clock so this is all in their spare time and when you got to understand i didn't know this about cops even with my brother-in-law um is you know you got your hours that you got to do on shift you can try to get some overtime but because of the pay and, you know, there's a lot of security demands, almost everybody's got a moonlighting gig. So I could either spend time with my family or I could be on overtime or I could go to my side hustle of driving my, you know, like sitting at a, outside of a bar or whatever it is that they guy do or extra security work. Um, or I could be here off on my limited available time where I'm not making money for, they're like, dude, this is the lowest priority thing to them. Free training. So low on, and I'm like, yeah, but I can see it in their proficiency. He goes, low priority, bro. And I'm, and I was like, um, I don't know how to change that. I don't know how departments prioritize and guys get paid to train, you Isn't know? That crazy. Um, Cause I mean, this is how it is in the fire service. Most of my career, I've taken my own money to pay for fire service training. I can't stand on the side of a motorway with the, the jaws of life, hoping someone crashes so I can charge them $200 to cut them out of their car. You know what I mean? These are, these yeah. are specific jobs I can only use gig. as a firefighter. And then, so these men and women are taking like vacation time. Now, usually these are like a week-long classes, the spec ops classes, spending hundreds if not thousands of dollars to take it. If they're lucky, they might get some sort of tuition reimbursement. 
And this is for the job to make the, you know, to make them better at that job. Airway classes for the paramedics. Yeah. I mean, all these things. I did that my whole career and nine times Perfect. out of 10, it's on my day off out of my own dime. Now, you know, I, I guess I was a, a little more motivated than the middle pack. So I'm like, you know, it is what it is, even though it's bullshit that we're not supported. But when you take a step back and look at the profession, like how many other jobs do they say, well, you can go train outside of your work hours. You have all these corporate companies that spend people to do next to fucking nothing but take a holiday for a week, listen to some bullshit, you know, PowerPoint presentations. You know, and everything's all expensive paid. You've got people whose lives are at stake and they have to take their own vacation time, which is limited, and their own money, and these people are not well paid and train themselves. I mean, that is, is one of the biggest mistakes. And you compare us to, you know, SAS, Special Forces, etc. It's the polar opposite because they understand we want our people to be the best because lives are at stake. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if it's... It, I understand why you guys do it because there's a certain level of professionalism, right? That personally drives it. But you do, like you said, you have a middle pack. Those are the, a lot of the guys that I was training, you know, I was just, you know, and I even had one guy after months stop showing up. And one of my buddies who was actually a former uh, task force 160th, which is the special operations pilots. He was, he was, he was working with the sheriff's department as well. And he's like, yeah, this guy's not coming back. He's like, you can't teach him anything. I'm like, you're right. I can't. Not with that attitude. I can't teach you anything. You know, I mean, I'm I'm no drop a, a famous shooter online. I don't have it. I went to a I went to a guy one time when I first got out of the army. I was living in the United States for like three months, and um, we were trying to get to Dubai, but they could, there was some issues with ITARS, which is the transfer of knowledge through the State Department, and that. So we're sitting, and I'm like trying to find a place to live, and um, trying to find a job I, I put all my eggs in one basket so my transition plan was nothing and um so i went to a gun store and uh i was like hey do you guys do any training they're like yep i was like would you like you know this is who i am i showed them some credentials i was like i'd love to train you guys for free you know like to build my brand everything he goes show me let me see your instagram let me see your youtube channel and i'm like I, I don't have any of that stuff. Like this is, you know, thinking this is me. You haven't heard of me. And um, <laughs> like, why would you hear of me? Like, it'd be a big mistake if you had heard of me. That's up here to understand with the special operations community and, and law enforcement too. Oh, I have such a huge Instagram following. My address is on there. My social security number. <laughs> so if you, if I arrested you or you're looking for me somewhere in the world, which is weird though, I, let, I'll tell you that story. Um, so I was in Afghanistan. And we rolled up this guy that we'd been looking for for quite some time, uh, multiple teams. You know, you come in, do six, three, six, nine months, and there's certain fish, big fish that are swimming around. And, you know, that's like the Moby Dick, the white whale. And guys are hunting them for a while. And you just pass off the intel and you're constantly developing sources and trying to build pattern of life over years. Oh, this is about the time they go away for the winter season. And this is about the time and where we think they might. And you're just, you're just building years of data. You might be the guys to execute. And that's probably the wrong word uh, to action. The Intel um, might not be, you might develop it, move the ball forward. And maybe you get, you can remove that, that their presence on the battlefield and their influence. Um so we we finally were, we we got we developed enough intel and we we got the green light 
got permission to go after this guy. And again, you know, we always were trying to capture people. Um, and so we, 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 it was funny cause the Danish guy we had, um, and I'm running around, you know, we get in, we drive in, we, we run, we get to what's called the, you know, I'm trying to get to what's called the apex, which is where we think the main breach point is going to be in this compound. And on the back side, the black side of the objective, you know, the ladders go up and I had a bunch of, um, Jaeger core guys from, uh, Denmark and then my team sergeant and, uh, and some other, some other, my guys, they go up the backside to cover the inside of the courtyard in case people start maneuvering to the front side, to the breach. And so I'm up at the front and I'm, we just turned the corner on this, in this, uh, clot, this compound. And we're, we're making a beeline, um, to the front door to set a charge and, you know, start basically going through what we call our call out procedures. And as I'm, I'm sprinting to the door to get everything set up, I already hear on my headphones, like jackpot. And I'm like, how, how, how did you do that? And they're like, um, I won't, I won't use, especially I won't use uh, foreign guys' names, but they're like, so-and-so, uh, he already caught him. And I'm like, how? And they're like, oh, we were making, you know, we were scuffling up here on the floor and the guy opens up the window, you know, and slides the window open. They have like bars, jail bars. And, uh, he said something and, uh, this, this Danish guy spoke a little bit of Arabic and he's like, Hey, what's your name? And the guy said, he's like, Hey, put your hands out. And the guy literally put his hands out the window and they handcuffed him <laughs> through, through the bars, like a typical prison scene. And I'm like, how, how did that even happen? So we're uh, talking to him later and uh, he's like, yeah, good for you guys. Like in perfect English, he's like, good on you guys. Like, yeah, no, I, I didn't even know you guys were tracking me. Like I thought I was like really laying low. Like, I mean, I'm just like, it was very, it was amazing conversation. And cause you're talking to the quote unquote enemy and he's talking to you like, ah, like a cat and mouse. And I'm like, bro, you could have been killed tonight. And he's just like, I didn't even know you guys knew who I was. And, um, you know, this is, you know, eight, nine years after the invasion, like those cats are smart. The ones that I had so much respect, um, for quote unquote, the enemy, especially the ones that had been still in commanders, Taliban, Al Qaeda commanders that were still rolling around nine years after the invasion, like they were some pretty smart dudes that they had good OPSEC. Um, and he's like, so what do we do? Do you kill me now? Or like, what do we like? Well, bro, we're going to take you to jail. He's like, Afghan jail. We're like, yep, that's the system. And he's like, awesome. He's <laughs> like, I'll be, in, he's like, I'll be at my house in Dubai on the Palm in three days. He's like, I'll buy my way out and I'll be good with my family. I mean, he's like, I'm just here to make money. He's like, I got 20s. I got all my family out. We got a house on the Palm and uh, it's expensive there. I got, I got to hustle here. And so he was, he saw war as a business opportunity. There was money to be made and he got his family out. He wasn't a true believer. He's like, this is how I, this is what I got to do. This is my grind. And this is, I'm, I'm, you know, and these are the written, and I'm like, oh, dude, I saw so many parallels between the two of us, right? And I'm just like, I had so much respect. I was like, I can't hate a guy who's grinding it out. In his mind, he's grinding it out for his family. I, I can respect that hustle. Well, and how many people in the UK and Australia and America are also making hand over fist while people like you are out there wearing, you know, wearing uniform and actually doing the work? I mean, you know, a lot, a lot of the quote-unquote rebuilding of these countries, I mean, billions and billions of dollars. 
I've worked in the energy sector. I've had guys that worked for me who made four times my salary and they work for me um, because I was in administration and they were in sales and those commissions. And and I've worked in finance um, and both. It's just coming out of the military, you're very idealistic. I think a lot of folks that choose the military or fire or first responders, EMS, they're self-sacrificial. I think they're idealistically driven. And that's why guys pay for their own training. They're like, this is the right thing to do. A lot of people, a lot of people don't have that concept of the right thing. They think what's in it for me. Fuck you, pay me. You know, and I got out of the army and I tried to adopt that philosophy of fuck you, pay me. If it's not in my contract, it's not my scope of work. Fuck you, pay me. I couldn't do it though. It was so, uh, I was going to try to use a big word, but I used it wrong. Uh, it would be in so against the core of my values and just the my way I'm hardwired. Self-sacrificial. It's caught a lot of problems in my marriage of where people call me up like, hey, man, can you help me out? Absolutely. I don't even look at my calendar. I don't even ask my wife. I'm just, yes, I can help you. You know, because you're taught it's inbred. Like you're a servant of the people. Like you go out there and you do what needs to be done because you try to leave a world a little bit better than you found it. And then you get into industries like finance and hedge funds and holding companies and, you know, mergers and acquisitions and cooking the books and EBITDA or raw EBITDA, adjusted EBITDA. And like, what does any of this mean? It's whatever we want to make it mean, you know? And I'm like, what? But what about the investors? Don't we owe? No, they're accredited. They know the risks or they should have. Fuck them. I'm like, what? And I'm like, I, it was such a, it was, I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't like this life. I don't like the people that I'm around. Uh, I don't aspire to, be, I don't have a mentor here. I don't aspire to climb the ropes because as much as I, I, I need money to feel safe and secure, to make that little boy feel safe and secure, I was like, I can't, if I'm not, I'm not earning respect while I'm earning money. Um, and so there's just a lot of jobs I know I can never go into, but thankfully, oh my gosh. So I'll, I'll tell you how I met Bert. I was in an energy company up on the 14th floor, I think. And Bird had his office. If folks don't listen to you, I'm talking about Ryan Bird, man, parrot, goddamn Navy SEAL, Teal SEAL Team 7 walks on fucking water. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, uh, I give him so much shit because I give, I bust his balls because as a Navy SEAL in the movies and everything, and he's the CEO and he hired me, but we met years ago and I just go down to his office when I found out we live, were in the same building. I'm like, and I would just go down there and vent. I'm like, dude, I'm living a worthless life. Like I'm, we're moving numbers on an Excel spreadsheet. Like I'm making nobody's life better. People are getting richer, but I'm not, I'm nobody's life is getting better. And he's like, so then why are you there? I'm like, I pay my bills, man. I got, he's like, be great if you had like a cause. I'm like, absolutely. They're right. But, uh, Last time I checked, causes don't pay bills. And he's like, and so we just kept this conversation going for three years until three, almost four years until um, I was actually working in a, uh, for a um, counter human trafficking charity. And, uh, and because of all my side hustles, we were in a pretty good state and my wife got landed a really cool job and uh, she be, actually she became the main breadwinner. And um, 
And so we were in a point through investments and other things. We really were disciplined. We were in Dubai. We, we put away 50% of our paycheck for five years. So we were able, that really cha- was a game changer for us. Um, so he's like, I can't pay you that much, but if you want to make a difference in your life and make a difference in other people's lives, I, I kind of need you. Um, and so I give him shit because he's got this really kick-ass company that he's hired me on to. Um, but he's the face of it, you know, nobody, my wife's like, don't nobody knows your name. I'm like, I shouldn't know my name birds, the face. And he's such a beautiful face. It is, you know, <laughs> and, uh, but it, it drives him nuts. Cause I'm like, so like in typical Navy SEAL fashion, you got your face out there, you know? So we have good, you know, service, right. Inner service rivalry. Um, but I, maybe that's a good time to tell tell you what uh what we're doing yeah i mean that was the perfect segue so that's uh oh you're welcome yeah you're thank welcome. you <laughs> my next side hustle will be starting my own podcast and uh, helping people transition topics there we go there we go <laughs> but it's funny because when you said about saying yes that's kind of that's what happened with me with ryan too he said you know i remember his long phone call and he told me about this this crazy idea that he had and again i was like i don't need to look at my calendar for this particular one i have i pick and choose them but i'm like i'm all in mate you know when let me know when it's actually becoming a real thing and that was i think the phone call was like two years ago um yeah so and here we are but anyway i'll give you the mic back so you had that conversation he brought you in kind of walk me through that phase and then let's talk about the human performance project in 7x yeah originally he had me three years ago when he's like i'm gonna jump a delorean off the grand canyon and dressed as marty mcfly i'm like i'm in great i'm in you got me i don't even know why i'm in but i'm definitely in for that um yeah that's still something he wants to do um yeah so we started talking about so i i was familiar with bird's vision to do epic shit to raise funds for different causes so i know he has a passion for firefighters with sons of the flag um and from his own personal experiences fighting burns as well um and then we started to we about it i guess about a year ago we started doing this um fundraiser events where we would we would bring in you know former operators former team guys former action guys um to do a one-day event kind of like a tactical spartan race yeah like five six miles every half mile you just you're going to get your balls crushed by a former team guy in some kind of regard and guys were throwing serious money i'm like who's bird how do you know all these people have this kind of discretionary money because there's not a chance I would spend this. He's like, man, you're in Texas now. There are a lot of people that want to do the right thing that have the money and they want to do the right thing. They might not public make it public and showboat about it because he goes, it's a different breed of folks around here. And he goes, and they're not just here. They're everywhere. You just got to know how to find them because there are a lot of pretentious rich folks as well um, who give and donate to virtue signal to their other friends. Or I give to the arts because that's what you're supposed to do. I've never been to a symphony, but I write them a check every year. And there's a lot of that virtue signaling. He goes, but these folks are coming out here to like get it on. And uh, so for that event, I was still a white belt, but Bird's like, hey, you want to do hand-to-hand combat with people? So I got, I was rolling out there, rolling two versus one, playing capture the flag, jujitsu style, 
in the middle of the woods and getting getting smoked left and right. I mean, two stripe white belt had no business out there, but in typical <laughs> white belt fashion, I'm like, I'm the king. I got this. <laughs> I just you can't spaz for six hours straight. So <laughs> definitely <That's exhausting>. try. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, so that was years ago, and or that was a year ago, and um, maybe two years ago now, because that was maybe pre whatever. So he had me hooked there, and I was like, "Well, so what do we do?" And the great thing about the event was all these charities were out there. So he's like, "I can either continue to run Sons of the Flag and help one charity, which is a noble cause." He goes, "Or we could do epic shit and raise money for a lot of charities." And I was like, "Yeah, let's do it." And so. What really sold me in, in in one of the charities is Vets, which is Marcus Capone's um, charity. And um, it just so happened that Bird and I went through that experience. Um, uh, and, and we obviously see the professionalism of it and uh, the impact it can have in our own lives and so many others. Um, so there's all there's a whole host of charities. A lot of, almost all of them are tied to PTSD uh, and combating veteran first responders um, suicide. Um, having been in a dark place myself uh, two years ago, and again a year ago, um, I can I can empathize with the struggle that guys are going through, um, and the need for intervention. And same thing that got me to the point of going to vets and doing ibogaine treatment um, is we keep trying to do the same shit over and over again, expecting the stem of suicides to end. And it's clearly the definition of insanity. And yet nobody's, nobody's coming up. Part of it's got to be education. Part of it's got to be de-stigmatizing uh, the need to get help or the ability to ask help. There's, there's, and it starts at the very beginning. It starts in basic training and boot camp at the academies of here are some of the systemic issues you will probably face. And as macho as you are, or as strong as you are, as resilient as you are, you will get ground down. I think it needs to be a conversation. Look, you will, it's going to happen. So don't pretend like you're the only one. You're not. And we don't need a, you know, we don't need the chief of police or the fire captain or general so-and-so being like, I too struggle with, you know, PTSD and I'm not afraid to get help. Those dudes are great, right? Lead from the front, but they already got theirs. It's those up and comers, the frontline guys, the guys on the teams, the guys walking the beat, guys pulling the hose that are like, I haven't gotten mine. I got to keep my mouth shut because I got to get, you know, so many years in to get that, you know. Uh, to get that position, to get that tenure, whatever. To... But it's going to happen. We gotta stop it. Stop thinking that it's just a onesie or twosie. No, it's it's a hundred percent. It's everybody is going to get it because you get ground down to the point where there's nothing left. Okay. Well, at least we know that from the get go. Okay. So let's start now. We can start having that conversation from day one in the academy or at boot camp, and then start building systems in place. Until that happens, though, because that takes an institutional change. Um, but until that happens, we're just going to keep throwing pharmaceuticals 
at at least veterans. Um, I feel even worse for fire and law because they got nothing. They don't have the VA. They don't, they got, they're like, Oh, you took it off the badge. This is your last radio call. You're, you're bye. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. At least we have the VA. Not that it's the best, but it's something, you know? Um, and I don't know how police departments, because they're so segmented between state, federal, local municipalities, how they, how they almost have to, I'm just spitballing here. I know nothing of this world almost have to start like a, a, a federal union or something to be like in a campaign, like you got to help us. But at minimal, that would be on the grandiose level, but on minimum guys got to start talking and it's not in our nature to open up and be vulnerable because it's like, man, if I'm vulnerable, maybe, you know, um, like if my, my brother-in-law uh, shot a guy in the line of duty and they took him off. They, you know, I was overseas at the time and they took him off the line. They took him off shift and made him go sit at home for three days. And that was like his mental health break. And I'm like, my, my, I talked to my dad and he's like, what do you think? I'm like, Oh, we wouldn't do that on the teams. You get back out on the same mission. Like you normalize, like you don't isolate the guy and let him alone with his thoughts. You, you coalesce around them. You, you group them. You're part of the group. You're part of the tribe. You did what had to be done. Now let, let's move forward. We don't spend time dwelling on it. Is that right or wrong? I don't know. That's just what we do. Um, but you can't isolate somebody and make that the make that the goal or what's okay to say, hey, you're on your own. What is that? You know, and guys, I'm so much more open to the idea and talking about. It. I would never have had this conversation a month ago. We're Nobody gives a fuck about guys. You know, I was listening to something and somebody, a guy was talking, he's like, people would rather see me die in the saddle than fall off the horse and take a rest. You know, um, if society at large, because of, and we talk about toxic masculinity, but we're also not allowed to cry, you know, um, we don't, we don't need to mansplain anything, but we still are supposed to fix everything, you know, and be an endless source of strength and energy to keep going. Um, but we fucking break. So at a minimum, we got to be able to talk to each other, whether that's female, male, if you, you know, if you guys are part of the tribe, whether that's military law or fire, you got to talk to each other because you're dealing with it, whether you were ready to admit it or not. I wasn't ready to admit it for a long time. Well past the point, my wife should have left me a long time ago. And we had many close calls. And I don't know why she's such a glutton for punishment for sticking with me for as long as she did. Um, but a lot of guys don't get that chance. And at some point, all you got is your coworkers. And if you know you're going through it, even if you're not ready to admit it to you, because you're maybe haven't been ground down as much or you just been ground down so slowly you cook the frog slowly you don't even realize it you can almost guarantee your partner your ladder mate or whatever you guys terminology but your teammate he's going through it she's going through it start a conversation it's going to be awkward as fuck but you don't know what might come out and you don't have to have the right answers it's like talking to your wife when she's complaining a lot of times newlyweds, they make a mistake that dudes think, oh, I, I got to come up with the right answer. No, you don't. You just got to listen. 
just got to be available. Don't pass judgment. Don't I think try and fix it. Don't try to fix it. Just listen and don't have an answer. Just listen. And sometimes that's all people need to do is listen and let people talk it out and, and realize, Hey man, you're not alone. Right. And then it might start creating a culture from the grassroots up of vulnerability and resiliency and camaraderie and loyalty. And you won't have turnover when people, you know, because you build a grassroots culture that's that people are like the bonds of the tribe are stronger than whatever upper echelon politics that the brass is pushing down. You know, the best bar in the world. Where is it? It's the shittiest dive bar. But if you got your friends there, it's the best bar in the world. You know, it's all about brotherhood in the tribe. And you, you, we need it so much, that connection, that energy. Um, it, but it starts with a simple conversation. It starts with just listening and being available. Um, I wish that for, so, I wish that for every department, for every firehouse, for every team. Um, because, you know, I've, I was talking to somebody asked me to, uh, come to some kind of veteran thing. And I, I really don't like going to them, but I went and uh, there was a bunch of cadets from West Point there. I think that's why I was, I went, um, they're like, Hey, there's some cadets in from town and, you know, they're getting ready to pick what branch they're going to be, whether they're going to go infantry or armor tanks, or artillery pilots, whatever. Can you come talk to them and give them some advice? I'm like, I can try, you know, like don't do what I did. Uh, that'd be the for starters. Um, and one of the guys was, you know, he's like, man, I hope the war's not over by the time I get there. And I was like, bro, you don't even know what you're asking for, you know? And I know a lot of guys will listen to this from my unit, from whatever. And they'll be like, pussy, what a bitch. Like I fucking slayed bodies. I stacked them. Yeah. Got it. Been there, done that. It takes a toll on you, whether you want to admit it or not. Um, and uh, I was, I told the guys, I was like, careful what you're asking for. You don't even know what you're asking for. You're asking for a lifetime of trauma and pain and suffering. And you think you need it to prove yourself, but you don't. You know, there's so many other ways to prove yourself. Go be a good person. Go be a good husband. Go be a good father and pay it forward and help somebody else younger coming up. There's so many ways to leave the world better than you found it. Then, um, I, th- I kind of feel like I'm rambling right now. Um, no, but I mean, it's totally pertinent. And I think, you know, even, I've talked about this in the fire service as young firefighters that are scrambling to go see the macabre scenes. And it's like, look around. Do you see a trophy cabinet anywhere? No, you don't get a fucking medal for seeing the most shit. But it yeah. will come back in your little mental Rolodex 10 years from now and you'll wish you'd never fucking looked at it. One of the best yeah. leaders in the fire service, my Captain Terry, we had this horrendous call. This little uh, three-year-old was decapitated in the back of the car. And so we were called back to do body retrieval after the coroner had done their thing. And he DFO'd us to stay back, me and my partner. He's like, look, we're about to retire now. You're early in your career. You've got young kids. You do not need to see this. And it was one of the most amazing things I've ever heard or seen anyone do because you're right. You know, yeah, if it's in front of you and you can't avoid it, then as you said, that's when that flow state, that masculinity, that courage really kicks in. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. you know, to, to go seeking it, to, to pray that you get to stack bodies. I mean, you pray 
that you never have to fight, that these leaders yeah. stops, you know, creating yeah. these situations where, as you touched on with the Taliban or with your Danish and Polish, you know, comrades, all it would take was one shitty political fuck up and now you're murdering each other. Yeah. So if yeah. anything, you want to, as you said, pray to go back to your family, be a mentor on your community and therefore make the world better. Yeah, exactly. Um, I just, I mean, I just, there's just one thought. I just wish better people would run for office, man. And I know I don't understand all the complexities of governing, but man, there's got to be a better way. We can't, we just can't wield the hammer. It's not complex. It's just corrupt. You think about it. You've got to be a millionaire and you've got to be unethical to actually play the game, which is why to me, someone I think would be amazing was someone like Tulsi Gabbard. And I hope to God they find a way of navigating that horrendous wasteland to put someone good in the forefront. Because I Man, think we had such a great we had I love I love that you brought that up because it makes me smile because my wife and I, we I mean, fought for our country. She became a US citizen. And I have a new philosophy on voting, which is not the what you're supposed to say is I just find somebody from the other side and just agreed just both of us sit out home that day, you know, and cancel each other's vote out. And that was the last time I voted. Uh, I realized I stood in line for three hours with my best friend at the time. And we were both voting for the opposite person. I'm like, hey, what are we doing here? Like we could have gone and had a hamburger and a beer and like saved, had a way better time than standing in the cold. Um, but, you know, in the hyper politicized um, world that we live in uh, where everyone they need other people to be wrong so they can be right. And I don't think that's a new thing. That's, I see that in religion and politics all, all around COVID. I need you to be wrong so I can be right because people don't want to have complex conversations. Um, and so, you know, especially around election time, you know, I live, you know, in a, a, a nice neighborhood where a lot of people have moved from New York and uh, California and there's, there's billboards up in Texas I say, don't, don't California, my Texas and things like that. Um, or forget, don't forget why you left where you're coming from and things like that. And, um, and so I like having conversations with people because I'm, I can be, I can have a very vehement conversation without expressing what I actually believe. And especially when it comes to politics, cause I know I'm not going to vote. Um, and you know, I have friends that still contract overseas and like, should I come back to the United States? I watch the news. It looks so bad. Like, we're looking at other countries to the point where people have fought hard for decades for our us for the us and they're like i don't even want to go back you know they want to live that expat lifestyle and they're like i never want to go back i'll find a you know central american country you know get another passport and i was like yeah man the us is a great place to be from but i don't have to live here you know like and people are like especially when it comes to you know people are talking about civil war and i'm like and these are guys that i know that from special forces Green Berets talking about civil war. And I'm like, wait a second. We're warrior diplomats. We're the army's consultancy force. We go and we talk things out first. We go to the enemy and we negotiate. We talk and solve the problem. Why are you the enemy? Oh, because you guys are hungry. You're unemployed. We'll find a novel solution to a complex problem. But fighting is the last resort. We don't have enough guns to fight. We got to figure out what are all the other pain points and see if we can eliminate the threat that way first um and i was like man before you wish for a civil war but then some of these guys they're just like i haven't gotten it out of my system I, you want to stack bodies american bodies 
it's such a dangerous conversation, but such a weird time in our life that people are having these conversations and entertaining back and forth. So when we talk to our neighbors, I go, who are you voting for? And we'd be like, Tulsi. And like, who? I'm like, oh, you know, the one FEMA that still is back in 2016. You know, that one FEMA that's Democrat that's still in the race. And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, hey, if you're not an informed voter, you know, so we'd have fun with it. And they're like, wait a second. Didn't you say you're not voting? What are you talking about? And um, no, I think I think people like her that I don't think she'll never make it, man. There's no way. She's, she doesn't kowtow. She doesn't uh, toe the line. She won't. She won't have the funding. She won't have. And, and you see what happens with grassroots with Bernie. You're never going to get a grassroots Ross Perot senior. You're not going to get a grassroots movement. And that dude was and Ross June Ross Ross senior was rich. Um, billions rich. Didn't make it. I mean, there's just there's just no way, man. The, the systems, uh, unfortunately. People lose their souls along the way. And you, we're sending more and more veterans. Um, well, I think we had a bunch this last round, the last couple Navy SEALs, Green Berets. You know, I hope they don't lose their way. Um, I hope I hope they remember to be idealistic and uh, serve the nation first and not get rich along the way. Um, there's no insider trading. Um, they do their two years or four there was one guy, I can't remember his name from Illinois, but he did like two or four years or whatever. And then he's like, I'm out. You know, I did my time. Like, I think that's great. I think, I don't know. I don't want to get too much into politics on term limits and stuff like that. But my feeling is, is uh, we got to have options. If you don't have options, then there's a theory that I developed or whatever. I'll tell my kids, I'm, you got to develop options. If you only have one option, then you're not free. You have to be able to say free to say no to something or you're not free. You're a slave to that one option. We only have a two-party system, so I'm a slave to one or the other. Two is not an option. We there, There's something's got to change. Um, and I don't have the answer. I'm not I'm definitely established in this conversation. I'm not the smart one in the room. Um, but, yeah. Well, I think the thing it's that a gets crazy me. World. It is. Well, what gets me is there's 330 million people in the U.S., and the last eight, 12 years, you've heard the same phrase. Well, it's the lesser of two evils. And oh, there's not yeah. one person I know that's like, I love the way that we vote. It brings the best people every time. I'm all by So everyone agrees that our, our system is completely broken. Yeah. So it's not yeah. a complex solution. It's just everyone pulling their head out of their donkey or their elephant's ass, looking out in the real world again and saying, hey, can we do this? 2022 style as joe rogan i heard him touch on before and i'm not you know embedded in politics because i think it's shit so i don't spend time yeah. studying something that's it's completely toxic. fucking it drains broken. my energy i got more important shit to do like a fourth side hustle like i don't got time exactly. watching politics but you know so if it is you know the college um electoral college all these things were I, made sense when we were riding horses 200 years ago but now they don't yeah. then yeah. we need to fix that but as you said, there are some great people, and, and I was pointing this out, like the first 20, there's a couple in there that people are like, huh, I actually really like that person, and they never make it because they're yeah. probably good people. So yeah. it is an easy fix, but we all have to join together rather than let them keep dividing us and say, enough is enough. You keep giving us this fucking bright orange racist piece of shit or this geriatric half mummy dude that we've got now. Yeah, this is, who this are is not the leaders. best we got. Yeah, no, no, they're both out for their... They're both out for their own interest. And you and I 
are not at the forefront of their mind. The people are not at the forefront of any of their minds. It's enrich their lives, get hold on to power as long as possible, hold on to influence, to manipulate things, to maintain their... I think a lot of things we do with the industrial complex, the war machine, pharma, any, you, you pick a name, unions, education, teacher, whatever it is. It's not about, it's never about the betterment of you and I or the peasants, us peasants, us plebes. You know, we, we get, we get uh, docile by in comatose with the latest luxury item or told what to pay attention to, what to be enraged about. You know, we get another season of the Kardashians, whatever it is that we need to be the, the newest version. Of, and that's how dated I am. I don't even know if they're on TV, um, but we're, it's, the, it's just the gladiatorial games. It's just a distraction to, to, to distract you from the, the hypocrisy and the corruption of the Roman court. What do you do? You give the people the cake so they can eat it. You know, you, the serfs and the peasants and the plebs, it's what we are. That's our lot in life. That's the caste we were born into. Okay, fine. But that doesn't mean we, that's, we have to be okay. I'm not saying we're going to climb the social ladder. We're not. We're not going to, we're, we're always going to have our overlords because they're not going to give it away. But that doesn't mean we got to keep voting for the fucking, the fringe. Why do, why do normal people, why does my neighbor that can clearly run a 4,000, 4,000 people for-profit company, why don't he run for office? He's clearly got the intellect. He can juggle that many balls. He can, he can outsmart because he doesn't need the drama. He's like, I got my own little tribe. I'm happy. I don't need that in my life. We've made running for office so tox toxic and so disparaging that the only people that are willing to do it are the narcissists. You know, the sycophant. I mean, they're just, they're like functioning sociopaths and narcissistic tendencies that I'll say, yeah, I definitely want to get into that mindset. I couldn't be, I couldn't get on the debate stage. Somebody, one of those guys would say something to me. I'd be like, quite professional <laughs> i got two and stripes I would, motherfucker <laughs> i would beat the i, I had two stripes one day another yeah uh i there's just no way i wouldn't be able to not end up in jail for simple battering assault i'm like no i'm gonna remind you of a time where there is a natural pecking order in the the dog back and you ain't it and um yeah the pen might be stronger than the sword but you're gonna be the first one to feel the blow um, I just, there's just some people we just, I don't know, but, um, we were talking about, um, this is a hard pivot. Uh, we were talking about bird and the project. You were so good and with the segue before and you completely fucked it now, just so you know. I know, I know. I, <laughs> I did such a good job and that's why your job, your job is secure by hosting, you know? Um, because this is this just goes down a path of just anger and resentment. That's why I avoid it. I'm in a good place, and there's nothing that good comes from it. Like so, just to wrap that up, man. If worse came to worse, and um, I just I, nothing changes from the military or preparedness or situational awareness. I mean, I just pack up my bags and go. Let's go, kids. I'll get you a book. I'll get you the old Encyclopedia Britannica, and I'll educate you. Like I got skills. I got, yeah, I can, if I can work five or six side hustles, like we'll figure it out no matter what country we land in. We'll, and that, you know, cats land on their feet, people with talent, they generate options. So I'm, I'm never all in on anything, you know, except my family. 
and my friends now. Um, but this location, that location, whatever, we'll make it work. You know, I'm not, not sticking around and going down with a sinking ship. That's for sure. And this fucking ship is taking on water. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, well, we got to just got to stop putting those people where, I mean, it, you know, I'm, I'm, and I can't stand many of the ones we had recently left and right. But the thing I always point at, cause people get all butt hurt when I, you know, make fun of their orange, you know, Messiah or. Yeah. But or that's this. because there's clowns to the left me and jokers to the right. And you are stuck in the middle. Mm -hmm. But my thing is this, let me ask you this. Has this person that you adore, Remember, people adore Michael Jackson too. He was a pedophile. People choose some very strange idols and ignore all the bad shit they do. Um, and he's still on Spotify, by the way, when everyone else has been cancelled. But that's a side point. Um, but, uh, you know, have they unified the country or have they divided it? Donald Trump divided the country. Joe Biden has divided the country. So you can't tell me that this is an amazing leader. Oh, but he's not a career politician. And oh, he's so good with business. Has he divided the country or has he unified the country? That is the only question you need to ask someone who's truly claiming to be a leader. And the answer is no and no. So we need to change the way we choose these people. It's that fucking yeah. simple. And I think that this is an amazing country. And the problem is there's a few, you know, extremist mouthpieces that are projecting that's how we all feel. When the middle 80% are like, these people are both fucking crazy. So we have to have the voice take our country back from these lunatics on the left and the right and realize that we don't have to go anywhere, but we should probably find an island to send these fuckers so they can murder each other. We can <laughs> there you go. Them. That's that's the right way. They had an island. They There's had an passport. island. See ya. <laughs> they, they had an island they all used to hang out on, and he didn't kill himself. Well, exactly. Um, no one else has been held accountable for that either. But anyway, another rich, famous person. Tons of person. victims and no, yeah. It's, it's just so much weird shit um, going on. Um, but it, the reason why we started going down this rabbit hole is we were talking about the VA and big institutions helping out people and the failure of institutionals institutions across the board, whether that's the first responders, fire EMS, uh, the military. Um, there's been a lot of great changes in the VA uh, with outsourcing um, to local uh, providers. Um, but still the number one thing is to, to write a prescription. I walk into my, I go to the VA twice a year. You know, every six months for a checkup, I get a free blood test. That's really the only reason why I go. I get a free blood test, um, and that, and I, I I always ask for the results because most people don't. They're like, "Oh, you actually want the results?" Yes. Everything's in those results. Everything's in my blood. Like, you know, if I have cancer, you know, if I have leukemia, or if I'm pre, like, I need those results, and I can educate myself. Thank you, WebMD, on what those results mean. I don't know what those initials mean, but I'll read. You know, that's how I found my wife. Just read. Like, and I think that's a lot of the problem with the, like to, to transition fully with the politics is most people don't know the issues. I don't vote, but I know the issues. I know the candidates, but most people don't, they're just lazy or they're just being pacified with something else. And they can't, they just don't have understanding the issues is complicated. It's tiresome. It takes a lot. Most of the politicians don't actually understand the issues. They just do what they're told. Um, that's why Tulsi's never going to make it. She doesn't do what she's told. I thought Bernie had a better chance because he actually made it to the final debate stage. But at the end of the day, he did what he was told. You know, they all do it to get that far. You do what you're told. Um, so I wish that there was better candidates, but most smart 
individuals who can think for themselves, they'd get pushed aside by the machine. Um, but I, you know, the institutions would, it'd be great to, for them to do a better job in lieu of that. You got folks like you and me who can step up and leave the world a little bit better place than we found it. And that's through individual efforts, charity organizations, nonprofits doing epic shit, even at the local level. Um, now we're, we're, we're involved in something a little bit more than the local level. We're going around the world in seven days um, to raise funds for veteran first responder, uh, firefighter services. Uh, and the theme is uh, combating PTSD and suicide um, because we all struggle with that. I think it's, it's, it's a human condition. You know, we're, we don't have a monopoly on pain in our communities. We don't have a monopoly on woe is me. But there is a higher preponderance of it. And those are the communities we come from. That's where we cut our teeth. And that's where my tribe is. As much as I, when I left the military, I wanted to leave it behind. I wouldn't tell people I was a Green Beret. I wouldn't tell people I went to West. I still don't like t- saying I went to West Point because that's got a whole more act, white, you know, blue-blooded stigma to it, um, despite me going there and being horrible at it and barely getting through and barely getting in. Um, I just, I don't like, you know, because, but that, that's my tribe. That's where I came from. And if I'm going to give back, I understand those people. They're my people and I'm going to give back to them. And that's where I take care of my family and I take care of my brothers in arms as best as I can and raise money to help fund the organizations who aren't getting the government dollars because the government isn't doing it themselves. It's a self-licking ice cream cone that just keeps pumping meds out that are bad at a they have cascading effects. They don't work well together. And especially since we know there are things out there like plant-based medicines that do fix you. I'm living proof of that. I was a different person 30 days ago. I would not have this conversation 30 days ago. There's just no way. I'm so glad you didn't ask me to do this podcast. It would have been a totally different, it would have been laced with pessimism and sarcasm. And I have plenty of experiences to be jaded. And yet I hope my tone is one of hope and love for the future uh, or love and hope for the future because we can make a difference if we just get off of our ass and say it's worth the effort, it's worth the energy, put down the Netflix. I'm not saying I don't sit on the couch and watch binge watch every now and then. I love me some Andor on Disney Channel. That being said, um, it's okay to take some time to invest. And it could be just listening, could just be reaching out to somebody you haven't talked to in a while, and I need to do better of that. Um, but it also could be, you know, jumping out of a plane and running a marathon and swimming in seven different continents in seven days. Um, oh, by the way, I hope Bryce comes up with a plan and figures out how we're going to do that. Um, <laughs> so if people, if people don't know, I'm, I'm running operations on all of that stuff and it's a fucking nightmare. My wife's doing a plan in a 5k for her company and they're just running around their office. And, and I'm just like, that's cute. I'm like, I wish I had to plan a 5k. And she laughs. She's like, I know I'm way too stressed over this. And, uh, and I'm like, man, she's like, you need help. And I'm like, I really appreciate it, but I, I can't, I got to do this. Um, 
I, I'm so appreciative of the opportunity to do something on this scope and this scale. Um, I think a lot of guys need something epic. They need something bigger than themselves to be inspired, to move the ball forward um, in their own lives because they're doing something for somebody else. Uh, I think that's where the kind of guys that join fire, police, EMS, uh, military, because we're willing to sacrifice ourselves for somebody else. Um, and to be able to do that again uh, through a charity, through a nonprofit of doing just something ridiculous, uh, thanks to Bird's vision. Um, I think uh, there's a lot of guys on the team that are like, I needed this. You know, I was, I wasn't, I was alive, but I, like my wife said, you were alive, but you're not living. Something, something's just not in you is not being triggered and there's just so much more potential and capacity within you to live and if you live truly then other people will too and um so who am i to sit back on my laurels and grow old no rage rage against the dying of light so that's my two cents well thank you yeah i mean you are as you said you're kind of orchestrating the logistical side of 7x itself so we yeah we've spent what eight months or so with some of the greatest minds um, in nutrition and neuroscience and you know uh, physical therapy and all these a lot of whom work for tier one organizations yeah preparing our main athletes which is Ryan and some some of the Delta guys um, to do this incredible event then seven X is going to be as you mentioned seven skydives and or base jumps marathons and then swims uh, in seven continents in seven days but really that simulates the deployment it simulates the you know the grenfell fire or 9-11 or you know the vega shooting and then we're studying the reboot you know which is the i'd say probably the most powerful of this whole thing so it's not a shiny yeah. object one-time charity event that's just simply the the thing that will catch people's eyes and then get them looking sure. for the conclusion of the study which will then be in form of a manual which will then fund the non-profits as you were saying um and then a docu-series as well but with you being in charge of the recce's, I mean, you sent me to London, and you know, I made some amazing you know, contacts when I was there. Tell people about each of the stops, so that if people listening are in, you know, the Middle East or Australia, or in my case, London, you know, where yeah. and when they can expect us to be, you know, going to their city and representing their first responders, military, and associated professions. You would think, like, as the COO, I would have this stuff readily available on the top of my head. I actually have to pull up notes cause there's just so much stuff. So we'll be, we'll be landing in, uh, we'll be in Cape town. Uh, I'll be there, uh, probably a couple days early, but we'll, we'll have folks in Cape town just as an administrative stop, um, loading up the plane, putting all the cargo in, you know, last minute, uh, parachute checks and whatnot. Um, and we'll be taking off, from Cape Town down to uh, White Desert or the White Fang um, runway strip. Google that. It's pretty epic uh, place. And we're going to be doing that. We'll be landing there on the 16th of February, 2023. So I'm sure we'll – they wanted to leave a couple days earlier, and I was like, guys, especially for the married folks, I mean, you're already going on a guy's trip. There's some girls going on the trip, but m none of our spouses are going with us. And you want to you want to miss Valentine's Day? like. You're, you're never going to hear the end of it. Um, <laughs> so we, we push it back two days. Um, 
And uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll spend 24 hours on the ice in um, Antarctica so we can really, one, get acclimated to the cold a little bit. And um, I forget what the temperatures are. I think it's, uh, it's some ridiculous number. I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. The, the, the temperature at the altitude, it's insane. Um, but we have an amazing um, sponsor, Through Dark, out of the UK that's providing all the cold weather gear. Uh, they're in Iceland right now, test doing you know some extreme cold weather testing on the gear that the guys will be using. Um, so, shout out to them, awesome sponsor. So the guys don't freeze to death at elevation at altitude. Uh, so as soon as they jump out of the plane, I'm starting the clock. So we got 168 hours from the time they jump out of that plane to the final swim uh, at the final station, which is now going to be in Dallas. So we're going to fly from as soon as they jump out of that plane, that clock starts, they land on the ice, they start running a marathon around the ice on the blue ice runway. Um, and then jump into the water there, get cold, get them warm, get them back on the plane. And we're flying to Perth, Australia. So we'll be on Perth on the 18th. Um, and we're working in conjunction with some of the military guys there, uh, the SAS. Um, and so we'll be doing the same thing jump, run, swim. So, and I'll, and I'll say the dates and the cities, but if anybody is along these locations, they want to come out and do a run. Um, they want to come out and cheer, take some pictures, post some stuff to social, um, just learn more about the different charities that we're sponsoring or how you can get involved in your local area with different charities that are, uh, working with, uh, combating, uh, first responder and veteran, mental health and suicide and nutrition and, and, and all encompass that all encompasses human performance. Um, so we're, we'll, we're doing that to say, listen, you don't have to live a sedentary life. You don't have to be a, a victim of the status quo. You can live a better life. You can maximize your potential as a human, as an athlete, as a, as a, as a spouse, a father, mother, um, as a child. And the study that we're doing is understanding the physiology um, that's going into getting ready for something. But mo like you said, most importantly, the reboot and how do you do it and how do you maintain healthy lifestyle choices based off of what you do, what's your output, but also what's your input? What are you putting into your system? So we'll, we'll have plenty of information at each of these locations and uh, I'll tell you where we're going to be. So in, in Perth, We'll be out on uh, Cot Beach, Cottlesley Beach. Uh, you can find us there. Uh, then we're headed to Dubai on the 19th. We'll be out at Sunset Beach right next to, if you're in Dubai, you know what I'm talking about, right next to just north of uh, Burj Arab. Um, we will be in Cairo. We'll be staged out of the Mina House in Cairo. Then we're going to London on the 21st. We'll be at the Royal Chelsea Hospital Um the pensioner hospital down there and those grounds will be running around Buckingham and doing a swim up in Serpentine Lake. It's cold, but come on down. Uh, then we're flying, got a long flight to Cartagena, um, where my buddies that did recce said that's the best kept secret in the world. Um, and we'll be in Cartagena. We'll be in an old town, uh, downtown in the old area. And then we'll also be uh, out uh, doing the swim, the jump, and everything there in Old Town. Then we'll be up to DFW. We'll be up north. We'll be arriving at uh, Alliance Airport in 
uh, Dallas, uh, and we'll be doing most of our events around the Gaylord Hotel, uh, Marriott Hotel. So if you know anybody at Marriott that wants to comp us a bunch of rooms around the world, hit me up, Bryce at AmericanExtreme.com. I'll take it all. Thank you very much. You can find me on LinkedIn and Instagram. Boom. Beautiful. Well, thank you for that Roasted. summary. Yeah, it's because it's funny. Again, back to this uh, this conversation a couple of years ago. You know, it was like, oh, we're gonna go around the world, we're gonna do all these different jumps and swims and and runs. I'm like, that sounds awesome. But now we're like t minus two and a half months away, and we're like, oh, fuck. yeah, I'm so scared. <laughs> this is uh, gonna be terrifying. And I'm willing and to admit it. Like, <laughs> I, I'm I'm so scared. There's so many variables. Uh, you know, I was I was I was being honest with my wife, and she's like, "How are you feeling?" I'm like, "I'm I'm." petrified i've never been more scared for anything in my life because no matter and you know bird brought me on because it's like ah, every best planners in the world are green berets i'm like oh man i wish you didn't believe the hype uh there's so many times where i'm just like i hope this shit works um and uh there's just so many there's there's hundreds of variables that i've planned for contingency plans but i there's just so many that i can't account for and i have no control over and moving forward knowing i have no control you know if somebody doesn't show up exact i can plan everything hey this guy this guy's phone number here's his backup cell phone his email like his twitter handle everything he's going to be there at this location to pick us up to move this bit to here here it I, i can't actually make him show up though and it derails everything and we're on such a tight timeline to do all of that. We're looking at 85 plus hours in the air. So that's under, that leaves us like 80 hours to get it all done. Times seven and we're on a, that's 35 hours just in running, you know, and that doesn't account at all for the drive time. Some of these places are two hours away um, because there's certain restrictions on jump sites and things like that. I'm like, I don't know how, you know, like if we make it, It'll be, it'll be not because of anything anybody on this team did purely by chance. None of us can control the winds. You know, if we get a crosswind, that's just the the guys like you're not jumping fucked. We're fucked, you know, and we could be fucked from the first day we take off from Cape town and we, and we can't, we miss our flight. We miss the cold temperature window. And they're like, Hey, we're shutting down operations. All, All we can do is the best we can do. Um, I think, it's we're gonna our goal is to do 160 hours. I think we can do it. It's gonna be a lot of divine intervention to make that happen. Um, because anything could go sideways. We spend too long in the visa line. It takes too long to get through customs. Shit that I can't control. Um, and, and we won't hit the target. But at a minimum, we will we will complete the task and we will do an amazing research. Um, an analysis of the physical impacts of stress and nutrition and mental health. And we will be donating a shit ton of money to charities to impact directly impact um, folks like you and I who so desperately need it. They don't need to be handed another pill. Pills have a place. I'm not anti-pill. I'm not anti-vaccine. But we can do better for our folks. We can do it, and it comes through peer-to-peer relationships, peer-to-peer inv- intervention, and that's a lot of the charities, if not all of them. That's that's at their core. They are, they have served they have different vehicles, but that's their very core 
is reaching out to people and having a, having a relationship. And that's the crux of the healing, whether that's surfing or Ibogaine treatments or whatever, it's about relationships. And uh, it always comes back to that. We need each other. When we were on the front lines, that's all we had was each other. We didn't have politics. We didn't have political parties. We didn't have talking points. We just had each other and nothing, nothing's changed. Um, this, this team, we rely so much on each other to get this event off the ground, to raise the funds, to find the charities, to vet them out. Um, there's just so much camaraderie and so much sense of brotherhood and sisterhood. That's just, it's, it's the love is palatable. It's awesome. And, uh, I'm so, I'm so lucky and happy to be on this. I never want to do it again. I'm going to be honest with you. I never want to do this again. Um, no, don't get me wrong. If Bird's like, the next thing we're doing the Grand Canyon, I'm, you son of a bitch, I'm in. But I... <laughs> the Grand Canyon in yeah, America, I'm, I'm right? need a, Another Grand Canyon need, in each seven continents. Yeah, the Grand Canyon in America. But actually, he the next one he wants to do, as a plug for the future, he wants to do something called Miracle Jump, which I think we'll do probably in the winter don't hold me to this, but probably the, as soon as we get back, we're gonna, I have to start planning the next one, which is the 80s style hoverboard in the air, parachuting with a snowboard. I don't know why people stopped doing that. Oh, um, it was a big thing for a while, and then all of a sudden- I know, right? It was in every commercial. You couldn't have a commercial for Pepsi Zero, Pepsi Clear Pepsi without a hoverboard, you know, an Aerosmith. Um, that was like a recipe for success for any product placement. Um, we're going to hoverboard- land somewhere in Switzerland on the snow, cut away, parachute, do some epic shit in snowboarding, and then base jump with a snowboard? Hopefully you got the right parachute the first time. (laughs) Right. I'm like, Bird, does that mean we got to have your jumping with four parachutes, a main and a reserve for each one? I'm like, this is nuts. He's like, that's why it's, if we pull it off, it'll be a miracle. (laughs) He's like, you got this, right? And I'm like, I, one, I'm not a jumper. I know nothing about jumping besides what the army would push me out of the plane and gravity took over. Um, I can snowboard, but not as good as he does. I'm not a runner. I mean, we're going to, you and I, we're we're athletes, but we're not like these guys. I mean, for me, it's like you and me, we're going to, so if, Hey, if you come out, if you're listening and you come out and you just want to do some jujitsu, like, come on out, James and I, and actually Bird told me one of the, one of the guests, one of the guys that's buying a seat on the plane, he's like, I, I don't want to uh, do any of the excursions and those experiences, you know, go eat at the top of the Burj Khalifa or anything. And he's like, I just want to hang out with the athletes. And Bird's like, oh, okay. You want to run marathon? He's like, fuck, no, I don't want to run a marathon. I just <laughs> want to hang, hang out. out. <laughs> yeah. I, just, I said, hang out. Did I, I say run? Marathon. Yeah. He's like, you know, I'm an athlete. I want to hang out with that. Bird's like, oh, you're an athlete. What do you do? He's like, I do jujitsu. And he's like, oh, I got the perfect ops tent because I'm bringing mats with me. And uh, so, hey, in any of those locations, if you want to run, uh, walk, uh, come hang out. If you want to roll, uh, you know, you come, come get some. I got my, I got my two stripes. What's up, bitch? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get my spaz on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hey, once you go to Bluebell, it's not spazzing, it's scramble. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm very good at scrambling as long as they don't put a gear on me. 
in which case i just yeah, like bro, a sack I, of potatoes is pinned by anyone I, stronger than me oh really i love the ghee it's so creative i love pulling it out and wrapping it in worm guard and like doing all these things and i was traveling in germany i know this is way off topic but we can cut it out i was in germany for a month visiting family and i went to a gym where they they specialize they do mma there but they really specialize in no gi uh because of their mma background it's a grace but it's a gracie gym and so i you know there's doing some um, and I suck at Nogi. I'm trying, I'm just trying my best. Cause I mean, I know that I go there every summer. So I'm like, I got to get better. Um, but once we put on the geese, like they had, they had, they were like fish out of water. They had no idea. And I'm, I'm, I'm pulling guard and I'm pulling my gi out as fast as I can. I'm untucking their gi and they're just looking at me like, what's, and I start just tying knots in people. And they're like, the fuck is going on here? that every, every we'd have to break and the teacher would have to explain like these you know these are rules these are allowed this is a and i had so much fun with it i love the creativity of the gi if you use the gi to your advantage my coach um, today i was doing a move and i was i forget i had the you know my arm around the head and then my other um arm under one of his legs and then he, i was trying to he was trying to move so i was blocking him and my coach was like james don't ever do that and i looked at him like so explain to me what I was doing wrong. He said, well, if you're ever wearing gi, and I'm like, well, there's the answer. I'm not going to wear a fucking <laughs> gi. <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> yeah. Which is funny because like my argument for not doing gi, you know, I've been training for just over three years and, or my argument for not doing no gi. I was like, yeah, it's just a little bit too man, too much man. It's a little bit sweaty. It's like a little bit, you know, I'm pretty confident in my, my sexuality, but that's just a little bit too much for me, you know? And they're like, this is coming from you. And I'm like, yeah. What you don't know is like, I would always just mess with people, especially if I'm getting smashed. I talk so much shit when I get smashed. I'll like be like, there's some dude would be just completely kicking the shit out of me doing top pressure. And I'll be like, you smell delicious. <laughs> and then they're like, wait, what did you say? Especially if it's like somebody visiting, you know, and they, what do they say? And then I'll be like, I tried to do something really quick, you know? So I'm always whispering weird ass shit in people's <laughs> ears where, and I'm dying laughing. I, and at the beginning, people are like, oh, weird. Like, why are you? trying to recite poetry to me. And I'm like, I'm just having a good, I don't go to jujitsu to learn jujitsu. I go there to have a good time. It's my tribe. It's, it's the closest that the camaraderie there is the closest thing that I found to team life in special forces. And why do I mean by that? Like if you have a good gym and you got a good crew of guys that are showing up because you might show up and they want to because everybody at good gym, people are like, oh, I tried a new jujitsu gym. How do I know if it's a good one? I'm just starting out. How do I know if it's a good one? You'll feel the vibe. If you get the vibe that everyone is there to make sure that you're the best person that you can be, and their sole purpose is to invest in you, because if you become a better at jujitsu, they have a better training partner, and they're solely focused in making you the best that you can be, whether that's on the mats or off the mats. You found the fucking right gym, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And, that's, and I'm 100%. lucky. I'm a lucky enough to have found that. And I got a group of guys and girls that that every day they're like, "How are you feeling? Where are you at in your head? Where are you at? How's your family? And how's work? You know." And they genuinely, and you can feel it. They genuinely care. And um, and so for me, that's been my outlet. It, I'm, my wife kicked it off by telling me to go get punched in the face. Um, but I stayed there because people cared about me when I didn't care about myself. You know, I, I snapped my arm about a year ago in a tournament and, um, 
got taken away in an ambulance to the hospital. And uh, I, I messaged my coach who was also fighting in the tournament. I was like, Hey, I'm all right. I'm going to, they're going to knock me out and they're going to take care of it. He's like, I'm sitting outside. Let me know when you're done with surgery. I'll, I'll, I'll take you home. I'm like, I didn't ask him to, he didn't have to, he drove like an hour out of his way. He's like, this is what we do. We're on the same team, you know, and jujitsu is an individual sport. And I'm like, man, it's fucking amazing. You know, and he's poor as shit. You know, he's from Brazil. He's you know, like fucking poor as shit. And I'm the whole way home. I'm like, I don't know if this car is going to make it. Like, <laughs> I hope we don't have to break too soon because I don't, I'm like, and I'm like, come on, man, you're paying for toll roads. Cause everything in Dallas is a toll road. I'm like the love, the love this guy has for his, his guys, you know, it's just, I mean, that's what keeps me going back is. And so for me, jujitsu is low on my priority list. It's have fun. I hate running. So that's my cardio. And oh, by the way, sometimes I learned some jujitsu, you know, but it, number one is the guys in the team, you know, and the camaraderie. So let's give a shout out to the gym. What's, what's your instructor's yeah. name and tell me so, where the gym is. Yeah. So, um, I'll even put his hand, blast his handle out there. So, uh, it's Lucas Lima at Lucas Lima BJJ. Um, and I'm at, uh, I train at rockstar. There's a, it's a franchise of five gyms here in, uh, Dallas. And, um, so if you're in the Dallas area, come on, roll over to rockstar South Frisco. And I promise you, I will not fuck you up because I got a broken rib right now. Cause a uh, homeboy, man, top pressure and something pops. And I'm like, he wanted, he was just laying on me and I'm like, that's it. I'm done. And he's like, what happened? I was like, well, for starters, I'm 44. That that's what happened right there. I'm like, why am I here right now? <laughs> I have the same thing. I had a guy, we were just doing drills and he just wasn't paying attention. Big, strong, young guy. And um, I forget what we were doing, but we were literally, I was being the dummy for him to practice the move. The next thing he freaking throws on a guillotine, squeezes like he's trying to win the UFC heavyweight championship. And then, yeah, the gyms, the ribs all separate from my sternum. Uh, oh I, I tried to, I popped it back in. I'm like, I think I'm good. And then we went to go again. I was like, oh, never mind. <laughs> this is how long did it today. take you to heal? Um, I'm on week two. It was a subluxation. My, um, Eric Goodman, who's the, the creator foundation training. I called him and he's like, okay, does it, you know, he kind of gave me some questions over the phone and he said, does it, does it go back in? I was like, yeah, okay, good. It's a partial subluxation, not a full mm -hmm. separation. So, uh, it was only, I mean, it was a while, like two months before I could kind of really get the, the pressure on, again. Don't tell me that. I'm on two <laughs> weeks. I can't even roll on that side of the in sleep, but it's, it's, it's still sensitive to the touch, but don't tell me two months. Yeah, it, was, it sucked. And I'm not exactly a big lad, so, you know, I'm, I'm built yeah. like a toothpick anyway, so it was easy for him to snap these <laughs> I know things. you and I wear the same gi, and I'm like, hmm, you look, how is that possible? But, um, yeah. I got monkey We're gonna arms have fun. and legs as well. I'll be, I'll be healthy just in time for the seven X tour and we'll have the mats out there. It will go slow for the old. If so, if you're young and come out and just want to smash us, let us know ahead of time. I can handle one smash a day. Yeah. We'll find you someone else to smash someone who's not getting on the plane <laughs> two hours after we roll. Yeah. Brad. Uh, yeah. I'll get some, I'll get some of the donors to come get a taste. All right. So for people listening, hey, thank you so much, man. No worries, mate. Well, I just want to make sure everyone just underlines. So people are interested in 7X um, and the Human Performance Project. Where's the best place for them to find on, on the web and then social media? Yeah, so you can, if you're on Instagram, you can find us at 7x.project. 
if you're crazy enough to come hang out with us for seven days, you can go to join7x.com. And uh, if you're if you're blessed enough to be able to afford a ticket, come on out. Um, we will be having, um, you can also, uh, follow bird's eye view project on Instagram, um, for all things, uh, human performance related, uh, beyond seven X. Um, you can always, you can follow me Bryce.n.hansen on Instagram. You can follow birdman, uh, birdman actual, uh, is the, the CEO and the, and the genius that came up with this, uh, crazy monstrosity of a logistics problem I have. And, um, yeah, you can also find us on AmericanExtreme.com, um, specifically slash HPP, if you want to check out the Human Performance Project. Um, so yeah, give us a shout, follow us online, and uh, stay tuned for the for the uh, the documentary. So one more thing I want to squeeze in before we wrap this up. You touched very very early on, just like in a, in a sentence about being an artist as well. Well, obviously it's mm-hmm. it's it's something that you do extremely well. People can see your art on Instagram, but where else? Are there any other places that they can see your art? It's very, very unique. Um, it's, it's, you know, as you said, you've got this dynamic metamorphosis of even the things that you experienced through Ibogaine that's now being expressed through some of your art. So are there any other yeah. platforms that you use? No, I, I don't know. No other social medias. I have my own website, uh, bryceenhansen.wixsite.com. Uh, um, slash art portfolio but that's a long one you can just find me on uh you can find me on instagram um and uh that's the best place because the website's there just as a placeholder if someday i do sell stuff but i i have no most of the stuff i probably put out about 10 to 12 paintings a year and uh somehow the paintings number in my house tends to stay the same they, they kind of ebb and flow but i've done um if there's any kids listening i don't go to my website don't go to my Instagram. Um, there are, there not, there's nothing, there's nothing over. Uh, I did for the longest time. Um, I had one theme, I had some soldier paintings, but for the most part, it's, I'd say it's, it would be classified as like subliminal eroticism and eroticism is probably too hard of a word. Um, but a lot of female form. Um, and I did that uh, to not go all the way back down the rabbit hole, but I did that a lot of times having a conversation with my wife, uh, because I was struggling to under to express intimacy and love. And I, and I used them as a conversation piece because we, she would watch what I'm painting and she'd be like, why are you painting that? And I would, t- we would talk about it. And, uh, she, she's always encouraged me to paint and talk about what I'm painting and why, um, so I've tried to get into some other pieces, um, some social commentary stuff. I painted the burning muck, burning monk, um, a couple years ago, talking about the and the flames were filled with different emojis, um, and and the commentary on there was, you know, like I don't think in this day and age we're we were talking about before so partisan is so divided that something as horrific that should be universally being like this is horrific. You know, but the flames were filled with happy, smiling, laughing, angry, crying emojis. Because I don't know if we could even look at a, something like that and have a universal, man, condemnation of like, this sucks. How did we get to this point? You still have some people who are like, good burn, motherfucker. You know, I, I think we, I don't know if it's a human condition or if it's just a commentary on current society, but I was just like, some of the stuff that was coming out, I was listening to pod, you know, 
uh, commentators and people that were opining on the news. I'm just like, it's gotten too much. It's gotten too much. And that's kind of what drove me to drive that, to, to paint that piece. But um, I'm working, I'm looking at a painting right now that I'm in the middle of. It's, um, it's, I got it all sketched out. It took me weeks to sketch it out. But during my Ibogaine vision, I really was, I wanted to try to come away with some visions. That was kind of like selfishly what I was trying to do. But, and, um, and as I tried to control the vision, I would lose things. And I was getting very frustrated with myself. And, and in the end, um, I ended up walking out with about five to seven ideas of things that I could paint to capture what I saw. But the one that I'm painting right now is a soldier holding a rifle screaming. Is he screaming in fear? Is he screaming orders? Is he screaming in pain um, as a last-ditch attempt? for help is it a scream is it a cry for help as it was for me uh, but out of his out of his mouth and into the background is all kinds of shit that i saw in my vision just just twisted psychedelic trippy ge geometry um i saw and i'm trying to incorporate something else that one of the guys that was with me who was laying right next to me saw what um and some of the things that we talked spent a long time talking about what we saw in the vision and what they meant to us. But I saw as I was laying there screaming in my mind, you know, or I saw this image of a face screaming, they were like these two Joker hands, like shooting down playing cards, like cascading in front of my face. And on the cards were just these old um, Viking runes um, trying to explain a message to me. And I was trying to read them as fast as I could. Um, but I couldn't, I couldn't get the message. Um, and it just, it just drove me to all end of like, you know, we're, we're trying to present the answer to you and you don't have the right lens to see what the message we're sending you. Um, and so I'm going to, I'm trying to incorporate different elements of that. Um, it's hard, to, it's hard to paint a snapshot of something that's moving so rapidly, but I'm trying to create movement, uh, through the, the, the trippy uh, geometry uh, to do that. Um, so I think it, it'll be good. And I'm going to, I'm going to donate it. Uh, I've donated paintings to other auctions. Um, if you haven't, if you have a charity, don't ask me for an, a painting. It's very expensive for me to do that and just throw it away. Um, but I am doing this one uh, and I'm going to send, I'm going to probably do a couple of them uh, for charities because this just so, means so much to me. So I'm going to send these next year, uh, vets is doing a gala black tie event and I'll have some of my paintings there for auction. Uh, and, and you know, all the proceeds will go to, uh, increasing what we're already doing with, with, seven uh, X, which is making sure guys, just like I had the opportunity to go, I want to make sure other guys have the opportunity to go and money shouldn't be an obstacle for somebody to heal. Beautiful. So. Well, I mean, I want to thank you so much. I think we've been talking because we, we stopped halfway. Dude, we've we had, been working like five hours. I think what? Good luck. Certainly good four. luck editing this shit. Well, now. the good thing is, no, but you are a talker in the right way. So actually, when I looked at the waveform of the first part, because we stopped because my internet sucked for a, for a bit. Someone was working on it, I think. And then we both had stuff to do in between. But no, I mean, it's very easy because, you know, you've taken us through your journey. And what's so powerful is you started, you know, as a, as a you know, a, a child in a, a very religious family and you know from affluence to poverty and then all the way through the military 
And it really painted this beautiful picture. And for you to have just gone through Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions Ibogaine Retreat a month ago, and prior to that month, you and I met at your house in Dallas yeah. when we all got together. So even I've got to see this metamorphosis, you know, with my own eyes. Um, it's been so incredibly powerful. And, you know, the emotion that that organically came out, I mean, you know, that is what needs to be heard. Because when I have, I tell people this a lot, when I have, you know, someone who's a yoga teacher and they get a little teary on on here beautiful but that's what people expect from mm -hmm. quote unquote hippy dippy people um and i yeah. mean that with no disrespect at all but when you have 100%. seals you know green berets sas firefighters cops being courageously vulnerable we talked about toxic mus masculinity to me where that term needs to be applied is to the bullshit facade that men don't yeah. cry and you know that's toxic masculinity this this lie yeah, that we've yeah. told to our men and so you debunk that myth by coming on and telling a story like this so we've gone all over the place we concluded with obviously wrapping up the 7x which is what you know <laughs> binds us initially but yeah. I, and again i genuinely from the heart want to thank you so much for not just coming on but spending the amount of time that it needed to to really tell your story and hopefully to give a lot of people out there hope that maybe think they've tried everything and now we've made them realize, look, you haven't tried everything, but this might kick against the very things that you were taught as a child when the dude on the TV was frying an egg talking about your brain on drugs. So I just want to thank yeah. you so Any much. Questions? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, thank you, man. Um, I can have this conversation one-on-one -on -one with so many of my friends um, so to have the ability to, to put it out there, um, and, and it's, it's an opportunity to me to be vulnerable to a much larger audience. And it's, it, I love it because there's no going back, right? Once it's out there, it's in the ether now. And I can't go back to my facade of, I didn't say that, you know? So it's a little bit of a way to hold myself accountable, to lock in the gains. And, um, just like the, that little kid who struggled the concept of money, there's, uh, you know, never again. Never again, I'm not going back. So I uh, thank you for the opportunity, man. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Mm -hmm.